Talk Recorded live. Hello again, everybody. This is Pastor Visser from the heart of the Dirty South, thanking you for joining us once again for a very special edition of the Obi and Visser Show. This Wednesday night Bible study will center around the topic of who or what is Satan. And with me, like usual, is my co-host who joins me from tomorrow, Obadiah 118. Are you there, dear brother? I am. I'm calling from tomorrow, Jeremy. G'day, Jeremy, and g'day, listeners. Uh, great to be with you once again, and Obi and Visser are going to give the devil hell tonight. Oh, indeed, indeed. You've got to kind of love that whole theory of there is no devil. I mean, you, you would think that an average man could just look around the world and say, hey, I can see his works, but you know, there's a sect of Christianity or Christian identity now that is starting to fall aside to this uh, no-devil, pro-devil belief, so I'm grateful that we're actually covering it this evening. Yes, it seems to be something that uh, afflicts only Christian identists or people who claim to be Christian identists because really, um, uh, unless you look at Judaism, um, there really is no other uh, Christian religion that... Um, that uh, supports this particular view. So it seems to be something born out of... My understanding was that, um, <clears throat> pardon me, Sheldon Emery was the one who um, started all this. Is, is that where it had its genesis with him, or does it go back farther than that? Indeed, at least as far as my studies, it seems like it did infiltrate Christian identity with Sheldon Emery. And unfortunately, David Barley, who married Emery's daughter... Uh, now, in this day and age, 2013, continues to propagate it. He's probably one of the more vocal preachers who preaches the whole Satan is just your flesh myth. Well, I think the true, the true test, Jeremy, of how heretical a particular doctrine is, is by how much scripture you have to change, rearrange, distort, and just throw out entirely in order to accommodate it. And surely, this, this, there's no better example of that than the the no-devil doctrine. I mean, you have to change the fall of man completely. You have to turf out completely uh, the first couple of chapters of Job. Um, I mean, so sorry all you Christian identists out there, but um, John 8, 44, that has to go. I mean, there's so many scriptures you have to change, and uh, it, it, it's just not funny. Absolutely, and that's usually what happens. Is It seems like, you know, I guess the same could be said for every sect of Christianity, but men want to start, you know, promoting their agenda, and that's usually what happens. I see it when women want to preach, suddenly they attack Paul, or, or you know, when certain people want to be old, old Covenant, suddenly they're attacking the entire New Testament, and Satan happens to be one of those things, because, yeah, if we start throwing out the temptations of Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden Christ wasn't perfect, he became this trickster you know so there's a lot that we can cover tonight and you know even that being said i highly doubt we're going to get to the top of it all but i believe we should be able to give people a good you know grounding in the aspect of that the devil is literal very literal and many people may be asking why is this important well i mean the same could be said about baptism and everything else if we're supposed to contend for the faith once delivered for the saints then i'm not going to have one of these guys come along and say i'm worshiping the devil simply by acknowledging his you know his name graces the pages of our bible well, the reason it's so important, I'm kind of spinning off on a bit of a tangent here, but if you've ever studied short story writing or novel writing, any form of fiction writing, then you know the absolute must, the, the fundamental thing you must have in your story is conflict. You have to have a protagonist, the hero, and you have to have an antagonist, the villain or villains. Without the villain, without the antagonist, then you have no story because 
in order to have an interesting story, the hero, uh, the earlier on the better, has to meet with some form of resistance. Someone or something has to come between him and his goals. Um, I mean, could you imagine the original Star Wars movie, Jeremy, if you didn't have Darth Vader and the Empire? There would be no movie. There'd be no story. It'd be com complete tedium. And uh, I believe that uh, Yahweh has made story, story writing like, like the way it is, that you have to have a, a villain in the story, an antagonist, to reflect his story. If you look at the word history, you break it up into its components, it's his story. It's Yahweh's story. And, of course, in Yahweh's story, he is the protagonist, the hero, and uh, Satan is the antagonist, the villain. And without Satan, there is no Bible story. There is no fall of man. Uh, there is no need for um, you know, Christ's sacrifice. Um, there is no need for the story at all. I mean, the whole point of the story is to show the angels in heaven, I believe, that uh, they made the right decision by sticking with Yahweh, and that if you're faithful to him, no matter what, he will bless you and, and prosper you. And, and so... so Removing the antagonist, Satan, from the story means there is no story. Yeah, absolutely. That's the way I look at it as well. As, you know, when I think about Christ's words in John 8, 44, when he tells those Jews that were standing there, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. You know, I stop for a minute, and I recall, and I, I start thinking for a minute, and I say, what would the devil really want to do, you know, in the year 2012? Well, first and foremost, I mean, it's pretty apparent the devil doesn't want to come out and show his face. You know, that, that's like the top of the list. So it stands to reason when he tells the children of the devil that they'll do the lust of their father, and the devil always wants to hide in darkness, as Scripture confirms, then it seems also that, that, that to me that the devil's children many times want to come along and protect their father, the devil, quote-unquote, according to John 8, 44. And I, I mean, you know, I don't want to sit here and say that certain people who adhere to this belief, the no-devil belief, are 100% wrong because there are positions and places in Scripture where adversary was translated or mistranslated. But to sum it all up that way, that's a really good analogy. You take, the, uh, you take out the antagonist, and all of a sudden it's us. And I think that's what a lot of the no-devil crowd likes to do, is put everything on man and give man the power of a god, when in reality, you know, Satan doesn't really have the power of a god. All men or Satan can do is pervert what's already good in the first place. Well, I think there are two extremes that people take when it comes to viewing the devil. Now, the least common one, obviously, is the No Devil's Doctrine, where people, which it seems to be pretty much exclusive to CI, um, where people just don't believe in the devil at all. And then, and then you go to what I call the Bob Larson extreme. Are you familiar with Bob Larson? Bob, I've heard the name before. All oh, right. Well, he's this American evangelist. He's a Jew, and he goes around casting, allegedly casting demons out of everyone and their dog. I mean, it's just insane. I posted a couple of because um, I knew I'd be mentioning him tonight, so I, I posted a couple of YouTube videos of him uh, allegedly casting demons out of people in the show notes on my forum. And in one of them, he's <laughs> every demon has a niche, as far as Bob Larson is concerned. Like, for example, in one of the <clears throat> pardon me, in one of the um, YouTube vids. I posted he's casting the gay demon out of somebody. So there's a gay demon. Could you imagine casting a gay demon out, out of somebody, Jeremy? Come out of him, I command thee. Oh, I won't do it, you bitch! You know, <laughs> and, uh, there's, there's, another, there's another video of him casting this, this demon. I don't know what he... He gives the demon some name. It's some particular you know, quality like madness or insanity out of this real nerdy guy. I mean, it's quite hysterical, these videos. But here's the, Bob Larson represents the other extreme, Jeremy, where you just blame everything on Satan. 
which clearly you cannot do because the Bible talks in, in Galatians chapter 5 about the works, the, the works of the flesh. You know, all, all the, you know, fornication, uh, you know, uh, malice, uh, slander, you name it. Um, so, so clearly the devil isn't responsible for every evil on the planet. But, but, but we don't want to take the extreme where we say there's no devil because clearly there is a devil. And the Bible talks about how he has agents, just like Christ has agents. That would be us, you know, his ambassadors. So it's important that when we talk about the devil that we, we achieve a, a proper theological balance and talk about the devil where, you know, we discuss what the devil is and what he does and what he isn't and what he doesn't do. Exactly, and hence the uh, title of tonight's topic. And I agree with you 100%. It's almost as if a lot of the no-devil people or the single seed liners, as we refer to them to, you know, take offense with Skip Wilson's little comedy act about the devil made me do it. And so they almost take it to the extreme, the opposite way, and say the devil doesn't make us do anything. And they usually will quote James, and I'm sure we'll cover that tonight, where it talks about every man's drawn aside by the lust of their flesh, as if to say that... There's no tempter there, but it really doesn't say that. But that's my opinion. I think they take it to the opposite extreme and say, oh, we don't want to attribute anything to the devil. And, and there lies the danger of, of being on the opposite side of, of the extreme. Is then if we're not blaming anything on the devil, especially the things he does, then we're attributing to ourselves works that we didn't do. And that can become dangerous as well. Well, I think the opening stanzas of um, the book of Job really talk about what the devil does and what he doesn't do um, and how he gets involved in things. And you see um, incidences or examples of this um, throughout the scripture, in, in particular where it talks about David, and we'll get into this, um, David taking a census. Now in, in Chronicles it says that, um, I think it's Chronicles, it says Satan got him to do it. And, uh, and uh, in Samuel it talks about how... how Yahweh got him to do it. But uh, if you compare that with the book of Job, you see that um, you know, both Satan and God, in a way, had a hand in it. So the Bible doesn't contradict itself, and we can't turn around and say that because um, you know, it appears that uh, God became a Satan, which he didn't, um, that uh, you know, anyone can be an adversary. Um, you know, uh, we, we must uh, achieve a proper scripture distinction. We'll look at those two verses uh, in detail later on. But uh, also there's a famous scripture where Christ rebukes uh, Peter and says, you know, get thee behind me, Satan. Does that mean Peter was Satan? No, it does, doesn't. If you look, compare scripture with scripture, you, you can um, look at that scripture correctly and just see what was going on there and what wasn't going on. But uh, now, now, Jeremy, you wrote a book about the No Devil Doctrine, did you not, called Sataniel? Is that right? Indeed. Indeed I did. And in that book, I attempted to actually try to cover, you know, there's a lot of non-canonized or apocryphal books that all mention him as well. And so that was what I attempted to do with my book, Sataniel. It was released in 2008, and the entire book was based upon the premise of actually the second book of Enoch, The Secrets of Enoch, chapter 31, verse 4, where it says, The devil is the evil spirit of the lower places. As a fugitive, he made Satana from the heavens, and his name was Sataniel. Thus he became different from the angels, but his nature did not change his intelligence as far as his understanding of righteous 
and sinful things. So in that one verse in the Secrets of Enoch, starting out the, you know, the evening, we see numerous things, and one of which is his name, Sataniel, which ties perfectly into the numerous other places where angels, usually their name will mean something of God, like Michael means man of God, so it's Michael. Sataniel means adversary of God, or Satanel means God's adversary. So again, we see the strength, you know, in a lot of the non-canonized texts, because it was based on that, and it gives so much more understanding. Like you were discussing the first chapter of Job, you know, I should point out that it's also, we have a second witness in Jasher, where it says the same exact thing, where uh, it says in Jasher 22, verse 47, Yahweh said to Satan, where come you? And Satan answered to Yahweh and said, going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down upon it. So what I'm getting to in this is that there are literally hundreds of books, not even counting the lost books of Adam and Eve and so forth, that all mention Satan. And every single time, it doesn't matter what transliteration you look that name up in, I have, I have yet to find a single transliteration except for Young's literal translation, which took the name Satan out. They would say the accuser Satan, or they would just say Satan, but what I'm saying is while they would add accuser in because that's what his name means, they would never take out the Satan part and just say, oh, it's just a simple accuser. Yeah, Jeremy, you've done many, many um, uh, podcasts on, on this subject, so I'm just going to let you rip tonight, and I'll, I'll just chime in whenever you need to take a breather or, uh, you know, um, just w whenever I see an opening, but I'm not going to interrupt you or anything. Um, but I just want to give a quick plug to something else um, we'll be doing tonight. I'm going to, and this, is, this will come as a surprise to you because I've made no mention of it to you, uh, I'm going to introduce a new segment tonight, Bible Contradictions Solved. We're going to look at the, every week or every other week, we're going to look at apparent Bible contradictions and see if we can solve them by uh, reconciling Scripture with Scripture. And tonight, we're going to look at one of the most famous contradictions of them all. Did Enoch die or is he still alive? So um, <laughs> after we do know devils, we'll, we'll take a look at that. That's a great topic as well, because you've got a lot of these people who now are interjecting all sorts of other things as well, and that happens to be just one of them. So I'm definitely looking forward to that as well. So definitely, uh, but, but, if you – yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, Jeremy, so whenever you want to start the No Devil scene, you, you go right, for, right into it, Jeremy. I won't hold you back. Excellent. I suppose probably the best place, at least in my estimation, to start on this would be found in an unlikely place, and that would be found in our regular Bibles in the book of Acts. In the New Testament, chapter 23, verse 8, and it says this, Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but Pharisees confess both. And so here we find the biblical definition of what a Sadducee is. And a Sadducee is somebody who comes along and denies the resurrection, and they also deny angels and the spiritual realm. And on the same token, of course, the Pharisees conf confess both. The reason I'm bringing that up is because a majority of the single seed line people out there who are adherents of the single seed line hypotheses will come along, and what they will do is they will... They will twist and slander and, and change around the words of Dr. James Strong to support their treaties. 
So the first place, of course, where Job, where Satan appears, you know, is in Job. And the reason we say it's Job is because Job is considered one of the oldest books in canon. Many people believe it even predates Genesis. But be that as it, as it is, Satan or Sahatan, Satan appears in the Hebrew numbers at 7854. His name is Satan, and it means an opponent, especially with the article prefixed Satan, the archenemy of good. And so the reason I bring that up is because a lot of these single seed liners come along and they say, well, there's no devil. Uh, Strong's just says it's adversary. But Strong's doesn't just say that it's just adversary. In fact, Strong says that it is especially the devil, Satan, the archenemy of good, or an opponent with the article prefixed. And so in essence, that's one such place where they'll come along and they'll say, well, the devil means adversary. Well, Jesus Christ means Emmanuel, God with us. Philip means fond of horses. But we don't hear people coming along saying, well, because their name means something entirely different, they don't exist. In fact, in my opinion, Satan's name is not only locked, but locked in that term of Sataniel, like I had stated, because that proves what Dr. James Strong had, had pointed out, that his name means an adversary, especially the archenemy of good. Therefore, his name would be Satan, meaning adversary, and L, God's adversary. So once again, we see this concept. Now, we see the same exact thing overlaid when they come along and they attack angels. Now, in, according to Strong's, in Hebrew, this is the Old Testament, in 4393, angel, wherever it appears, appears from the, from the form of malik. And its definition is, quote, an unused root meaning to dispatch as a deputy, a messenger, specifically of God, that is, an angel, a prophet, a priest, or a teacher. So the no-devils will come along and they'll say, well, there's no such thing as angels because they're truly Sadducees in their heart and they deny angels. But Dr. James Strong does not define angel as a mere messenger. Angel, once again, is defined as a messenger specifically of God. So once again, we see that term. And a lot of the single seed liners, they can't really debate with you when it comes to the term archangelos. Because while they'll say angel just means messenger, they have nothing to come against that, you know, that term in the Hebrew and, and in the Greek because it means the archangels of God, which encompasses Gabriel, Michael, Samziel, and a lot of the others that you know, many of us mention. So I think that, that in and of itself is quite telling. They also do the same thing in numerous other places, and I won't discuss it tonight, but a perfect example of that is when it comes to Naga in the Greek, where uh, it says in the latter New Testament epistles that uh, I fear that the devil will beguile you, beguile you or remove you from the simplicity that is in Christ as he beguiled Eve. Now the term in the Hebrew means to touch. But in the Greek, it straightforwardly means to lie with. And so what I'm saying is the no-devils come along and they'll say, see, Naga doesn't really mean to have sexual intercourse, not in the Hebrew, but it does in the Greek. So it's that type of, uh, of how should you say, untrustworthy and, and quite subtle changes that they'll come along and they'll try to attack it from the root in and of itself. They'll go right to the Strong's numbers, and once again, we see Strong's doesn't define the devil as anything other than especially the archenemy of good, which fits so perfectly into all of the other things that he did. 
So that that in and of itself, I think, is quite telling because that's what they'll want to change. And there are other places, and perhaps we'll cover that in the future. But there are a lot of people that do that. If we throw out the devil, then why, why are many of people many of the people considering themselves still to be Christian identity when Christian identity teaches that? So as you said. Job appears, uh, Satan appears in the first chapter of Job. And in the very first chapter of Job, reading in the Amplified, I'll begin in chapter 1, verse 6. It says this, Now there was a day when the sons, the angels, it says in parentheses, of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, the adversary and accuser, also came among them. And I just pointed out that that was, we have a double witness of that in Jasher as well which is a book I believe Eli James and Greg Howard have recently covered, and definitely one that I suggest for you know, people who are new to the word or not. But continuing on, verse 7. And the Lord said to Satan, Satan is capitalized, deified. And again, I invite anybody to find me a transliteration of the Bible, even a modern one, that, set, that drops this name Satan from this account. But Yahweh God says to Satan, from where did you come? And Satan answered Yahweh, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Now stopping right there. It is Yahweh God who is going ahead and telling Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Now Yahweh God knew Job's heart, and he knew that Job would withstand him. And this is most likely the reason, you know, towards the end of the book of Job, he, he uh, received tenfold for his faith. But during that time, the whole first 38 chapters of the book of Job is Job's friends and his wife and his children and the townsfolk all coming and telling him, saying, why don't you get mad at God? Why don't you blame God for killing your children? Why don't you blame God for taking your wife and all of these things? And Job knew what we should be teaching in this latter era, and that is that Yahweh God gives and Yahweh God takes away. That was attributed to Job as faith. And I'm sure at the time there were probably many people coming to Job saying, oh, don't, don't worry about the devil. There's no devil. And in fact, there were. It's confirmed. They came along and said, you know, Job, you got boils on your underside because you sinned, because you did something wrong. But the account of Job straightforwardly proves two things in my estimation. First and foremost, it proves this. When God asked Job, or uh, asked Satan, where hast thou been? He says, going to and fro upon the earth. Now, in the New Testament, in all four accounts, there is a temptation of Jesus Christ. Many people will come along and say, but John doesn't mention it at all. But in reality, John's gospel does mention the temptation of Jesus Christ. It's just here a little, there a little, and perhaps I'll go into that a little deeper this evening. But in Matthew chapter 4 and in Mark chapter 1, in the very first chapter, and in Luke chapter 4, all of them have the same account, and all of them say that the devil offered Satan one thing in particular. And the reason I'm getting here is this. If we want to come along and say this was just a man, this was just an adversary, then we could say, yes, maybe the, this man told Jesus Christ in his weakened form, if you be the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. He could have done that. He could have also came along and said, jump from the temple. You know, because the scripture says that the angels have charge over you. But one thing, a mere man could not offer Jesus Christ on the temple is all the kingdoms of the world. That's confirmed all the way in Job and in Jasher that, G that Satan himself walked to and fro upon it. And Jesus Christ, of course, gives a second witness when he says, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. 
So here we see Satan is on the earth in the book of Job. He's also on earth when it came time for Jesus Christ and his temptations directly after his baptism. And he offers them those three things. A mere man, unless he was the most powerful king on earth, couldn't still be able to offer Jesus Christ all the kingdoms of the world if only he would do him homage. And so that's one of the reasons why I like pointing that out as well, is because, you know, man couldn't come along and say, I'm going to give you all the king- kingdoms of the world unless he's lying. And, it, you know, who would lie to God in that regard? It d- just doesn't really make a lot of sense. But that's one such place. So it is uh, Jesus Christ who withstood the devil, and he withstood the devil because he didn't find the devil tempting at all. But before we get too much deeper into tonight's study, I want to read just a brief quote from Wikipedia before I read from a few articles as well that I covered years ago. But according to Wikipedia, right now, under the title Satan and or Sataniel, it says this, In Judaism, Satan is a term used since its earliest biblical contracts to refer to a human opponent, quote-unquote. Occasionally, the term has been used to suggest evil influence opposing human beings as the Jewish exorcist of 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 22. Thus, Satan has personified his character in three different places, serving as an accuser, a seducer, and a heavenly persecutor. But in Enochian Judaism, the concept of Satan being an opponent of God and chief evil, evil figure among demons seems to have taken root in the pseudopapagraphia. So once again, we see it comes from the Old Testament canon, and even the influx of a few Jews out there who happen to say, hey, I may be Enochian, uh, an Enochian Jew, stem from the Christian literature. Again, it is Judaism that says there is no devil, and I'm sure I can, I can provide numerous quotes on that as well. But to paraphrase it right here, they believe in a concept known as Yitzhar Hara. And Yitzhar Hara is essentially the same thing as saying spiritual impediment. So when young Jews pray at night, they, they pray their bedtime Shema prayers, and part of those prayers are to remove spiritual impediment from around us and from within us. What I'm saying is this belief that the single feliners espouse about there being no devil is identical to Judaism throughout all of the eras. Because they themselves have always believed that there is no devil, and I wonder why they would have reached that. It's much easier for, you know, for the Jews to come along and protect their father, the devil, when it is Judaism that says there is no devil. And, of course, I have authored an article about four or five years ago by the same title. And in that, you'll find quite a few of the quotes that I'll be covering tonight. But a perfect one of those is this. The Jew says this in... Um, Again, on Wikipedia under, under uh, the devil headline, quote, in Judaism, there is no concept of a devil like in Christianity or Islam, end quote. That's one such quote that once again p- confirms what I'm saying. Another one would be found this, and it's in the Jewish Encyclopedia under the letter S, under the heading of Satan says this, quote, in Jewish theology, this figure, Hillel in Hebrew, has nothing to do with Satan, and Satan, the impulse to do evil, Yetzirah, and the angel of death are one and the same personality. So once again, we see this, this concept 
of our flesh leading us down the primrose path to hell. That the devil doesn't exist and basically attributing everything to man's flesh like many of the one single seed liners do. They want to come along and tell you you're evil, that there is no such thing as temptation. And again, I pointed that out that they quote James where it says, a man is drawn aside from his own lust and enticed. But that verse isn't saying there is no devil. In fact, it's actually confirming that there is a tempter there. For each man to be tempted, even if it is all through his flesh like the devil likes appealing to us, it proves that there is a tempter first and foremost coming out the gate. So if we don't have a tempter, then what good is it? We're being tempted of ourselves. Once again, they like giving the devil more power than he's due. And it should be pointed out as well as this. If the devil is merely only our own flesh, then what's all the hubbub about Jesus Christ after his baptism in the wilderness? Because Jesus Christ, according to all accounts, especially the canonized King James Version, all say he was perfect. If he wasn't perfect, didn't walk a perfect life, and wasn't found acceptable in the eyes of God, which was confirmed after the crucifixion, then obviously his flesh was playing an adversary to him, and therefore it proves once again in a subtle way, at least according to the single seed line doctrine, that Jesus Christ wasn't perfect, that he was tempted out of his flesh, or even tempted from a simple man. When we understand that Yahweh God is spirit, and he is, that neither does he tempt man, nor is he tempted of any man, that statement in and of itself kind of flies in the face of the single seed liners, because if Jesus Christ is Emmanuel God with us, he can't be tempted of men. But many men out there like to come along and they like to say, hey, you know, um, I'm more powerful than Yahweh God, but not a single one of us is. But that's what he says. Satan tells Yahweh God, I'm going to and fro on the earth, walking up and down on it. And Lord said, have you considered Job, that there's none like him in the earth, a blameless, upright man, one who reverently, reverently fears Yahweh God and abstains from and shuns evil because it is wrong. And so we covered this partially last week when we talked about the fact that if we didn't have free will, there would be no need for Satan to exist. But we do, and we've confirmed time and time again that the reason evil exists is so that Yahweh God can try. Unfortunately, that was translated as tempt, but to try us and see whether we're going to serve him or we're going to follow basically the lust of our own hearts. If you want to follow the lust of your own hearts, then of course the devil will give you that because the devil's all about that. And in fact, that's exactly where I'm going to be going here next because there's other places within the Old Testament before we even get to the New where the devil shows up. And of course, the single seed liner love attacking them, saying, well, that's not really the devil, but we'll soon see that it truly is. First place that I'd like to go would be in Ezekiel chapter 28. In the 28th chapter of Ezekiel, and I'll be reading from the King James Amplified Version once more. But in Ezekiel chapter 28, beginning in verse 12, it says this, Son, take up a lamentation. Well, actually, that's in King James. Amplified says this, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say unto him, Thus says the Lord God, you are the full measure and pattern of exactness, giving the finishing touch to all that constitutes completeness, full of wisdom and perfect in your beauty. Now, stopping right there, that's where the single scene liner will come along and interject and say, Wait, what are you saying, Pastor Visser? This isn't the devil, because it says right there, the king of Tyre. But noticing, before we go much further, king is not capitalized. 
It's deified, meaning that it is, once again, the number of a man, which is the number of the devil, according to Revelation. People say, uh, the book of Revelation straightforwardly says, let us count the number of the beast, for it is a human number. His number is 666. Once again, in, in Bollinger's numbers in numerics, number six is the number of man, because once again, what we do is in the spirit. What the devil does is in the flesh. Therefore, the devil could be considered the ruler of all men. But even before going there, this word tire in the strong straightforwardly means rock. More specifically, it means a false rock. So if we trace the word further back, we can find out that this king of tire, whether we want to overlay him with the devil de facto or just a type of the devil, once again, it is the devil. But I believe the text proves that it's more than just a man. Because he continues on in uh, verse two. Hold on, where was that? Ezekiel? Yes. Lost my place there for a moment. But that's the way of the scripture. 28. And in 28, verse 12, that's what I covered. Son of man, take up a lamentation. Indeed. And say, full wisdom, perfect in thy beauty. Now pay close attention. This is Ezekiel chapter 28. Verse 13, this is a prophecy concerning the same quote-unquote king of Tyre. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was I covering, the sardis, topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle and gold. The workmanship of thy tabarets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. So once again, if this was just a mere man, then he would have to be an extremely old man, living much longer than Adam, who had 800 years, is the longest recorded, because here he is in the book of Ezekiel, and uh, Ezekiel straightforwardly saying that Yahweh considered this king of Tyre to be in the garden of God, which is Eden. So, and once again, we see that he was per perfect in his ways from the day that Yahweh God created him until iniquity was found in him. That's verse 15. Once again, that confirms as well other places where it says that Satan stood up, wanted and desired to be like a god. That he was in, the, in Eden, the garden of God, and that all of these stones were his coverings. Every stone that was found in the high priest of Israel's breastplate also so happens to be found indwelled within Satan himself. Not only that, pipes and tapestries, pipes and tabarets, meaning just like is confirmed in Genesis, through Tubal Cain, his descendants, that Satan also can be an artificer of music. So, again, on a side note, many of us should be careful what type of music we listen to, because the devil does have pull through that. Many different things. But lots of things are considered spirit. For example, whiskey. People who get drunk on the spirits, and then they wonder why they wake up in jail. Many of us can listen to music that's not very uplifting, and we can actually dampen, if, if you will, our spirits. And I, I believe that's part of it. In fact, my very first sermon was contemporary Christian music with a question mark, because I've always questioned the ideal of how many people will come along and say, this is evil and this is good, based on the superficial uh, looks of everything or how it may sound. But in reality, everything must come back to, is it upbraiding or is it not? A lot of stuff that passes for contemporary Christian music is not upbraiding. In fact, it's pro-homosexual, pro-liberal, pro-mixing, anti-racism, and all of these things, and they call that good. 
And so, to make a long story short, I could easily see the devil behind the Christian, contemporary Christian or modern Christian music scene, just like he is in country, rock, rap, and all of these other genres of music, promoting his ideals, and his ideals usually always fall alongside or correlate to the Talmud, never the Bible itself. Our Bible says, thou shalt not adulterate. The devil comes along and says, hey, it's okay. You can do it. You can get away with it. But verse 17 in Ezekiel 28, thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. Now, brightness is an interesting choice of words in this narrative, because when we get to Isaiah chapter 14, which is the one instance of where the name Lucifer appears, its name means bright and morning star. Just as Jesus Christ in the, in the beginning of the book of Revelation said, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the bright and morning star, so also does the devil appear as a light bringer, if you will, or at least a minor child of light, and also wants that homage due him. And that's why it says this. And also it should be pointed out as well that the devil... At least Sataniel, as an angel, as the archangel, as the, very, as the very archangel that stood over the mercy seat of Yahweh God across from Michael, knows the law better than we do. He knows how to twist it better than we do because he has a 10,000-year head start. And not to mention, was beautiful in his initial state. Now, within this is, is much power, I believe, because a lot of people, they come and they say, hey, you're preaching dual seed line. How is it that uh, Eve could be corrupted and seduced by an ugly, red, pitchfork-wielding devil? But the reality of it is, is that our King James Bible say that the devil was considered beautiful when he was created, that sin oftentimes can look beautiful, and moreover, that if we were to see Jesus Christ's physical manifestation before us, there literally would be nothing to desire, at least on a physical sense. And so what I'm saying is the Bible teaches opposite of what man says, because the Bible says Jesus is beautiful, he's good, he's all-loving, the devil is evil, perverted, and all these things. And they're only partially right, because the devil can appeal through the flesh once again. That's the original sin, that's why Eve fell in the first place, because the devil came along and made it look like hay. You can sin and get by on it. And it should be pointed out as well, this is something I want to throw in there. Even in the courts of man, if you're married in the eyes of the courts of, of man, and something happens, like you have a car wreck or your house catches fire and it catches the neighborhood on fire, you can't then sit, turn around and blame your spouse and say, hey, you know what? This person, uh, my wife did it. We're not together anymore. Or my husband did that, and then he took off to Texas. The reality is, in the, in the eyes of the law, man's law, that is, both are held accountable. It doesn't matter if, you, if you're together or not. If you incur debt while you're together, which could be considered a transgression against man, then you are both responsible. So irregardless of what happened in the original sin, what I'm saying is it's not Eve's fault. It's not Adam's fault. It was both of their faults. And the uh, lost books as well confirm that because they say the same exact thing. So, you know, just coming along and blaming somebody else for our actions you know, doesn't really work. But before continuing on to that, there's a couple more quotes. Here's one. Judaism teaches this, quote, There is no Lucifer, no devil in the Tanakh, but there are many, many adversaries and accusers of the Jewish people, end quote. That's from, from under the, the heading of Satan, once again, in the Jewish encyclopedia. 
Here's another, quote, Jews believe in two distinct Satan entities. The quote-unquote greater Satan, a personification of the evil inclination in humans, and a rebel against God, and the lesser Satan, a heavenly prosecuting attorney, end quote. Now that quote's found under... Uh, on thestaticsatanism.com, where it ties in Judaism and Satanism. Now, of course, Christian identity has been espousing the true God of many of these cults, whether it's Freemasonry, but all of these religions stem from Judaism, and all of them have one thing in common, and that is that they like to come along and say, well, you don't have to worry about the devil. The devil's not going to make you do anything. Hell, we're more powerful than the devil himself. But again, it should be pointed out that Islam and Christianity... Those two of the three Abrahamic religions, quote-unquote, believe in a literal devil, have always historically believed in a literal devil, and if what a lot of these single seed liners was saying was true, then you would think that in the last 2,000 years of Christian theology, someone else would have come along and they would have said, hey, you know what, maybe the devil is our flesh, maybe the devil's not literal but that's never happened. The reality is, is this no-devil belief was introduced by Rabbi Sadea Gaon, who was an 11th century philosopher and a scholar of the Talmud. He wrote in his commentary on the book of Job that we just read, that, Job, or that Satan just means adversary, and just like the other day we see when it comes to preexistence, all of a sudden there's this new doctrine that's introduced. But the original person who propagated the lie that the devil is not literal just so happened to be a Jewish rabbi. So that, to me, is quite telling as well. Why would he say that? Most likely because he wants to protect his father, the devil. But the king tire is considered to be a rock, a, and it's taken from the prime root of the word, stone and or knife. Just like the uh, tear sewn in amongst the wheat, this uh, king of Tyre, or king of the false rock, would be a thorn in the children of Israel's side. But that's not the only place, because also in the same book of Ezekiel, beginning in chapter 31, in verse 7, it says this, amplified once more. Thus was he beautiful in his greatness, in the length of his branches, for the root was by many and great waters. The cedars in the garden of God could not hide or or rival him. The cypress trees did not have boughs like it, and the plane trees did not have branches like it, nor was any tree in the garden of God like it in its beauty. Now, once again, here's a second witness directly from the same exact book of Ezekiel that this Assyrian now, also a type of the king of Tyre, was in the garden of God. Now, when we go back to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2 or 3, and we read about that, we see that there were lots of trees, metaphorically speaking, but none of which spoke, none of which had any actions attributed to his, you know, for example, like Cain. Cain had actions that were attributed to him, but he was also blottoed from the Bible for the most part. There were references once or twice throughout the years, but this Assyrian, uh, according to uh, Ezekiel chapter 31, is taken from the second son of, the second son of Shem. And the second son of Shem is, uh, Shem is Noah's son, and of course it is through Shem that the Shemites came. But many times it is our own people that bring our own adversaries upon us, and it is always through disobedience. 
It was no different for this second son of Shem, who was Ashur, who brought about the Assyrians, who pricked the children of Israel through the Old Testament narrative. In fact, we are confirmed throughout most of the Old Testament account that the Assyrian carried Israel away. And they carried us away because of our inability to obey Yahweh God. But the cedars in the garden of God could not hide him. Verse 9, pay close attention. I have made him fair by the multitude of his branches, so that all the trees of Eden that were in the garden of God envied him. Now, once again, we're not dealing with just trees. We're dealing with people. And every one of these quote-unquote family trees, when they saw Satan because of his beauty, here in verse 31 it says this. It says, fair. By the multitude, meaning he was fair just as David was. When Goliath saw David, he says, am I a dog that you send out a youth against me? He disdained David because he was but a youth and of fair countenance, meaning he was ready. So fair is an attribute, or fair is a designation that is usually reserved for the sons of God, whether they be the literal sons of God, like you and I, or the original sons of God, like Satan, Michael, Gabriel, and so forth. But it should be pointed out, he was failed by the multitude of his branches. All the trees in Eden could not, um, they envied him. Envy is not something a tree does. If we're talking about a literal tree, a literal tree doesn't say, man, I really wish I was like that cedar of Lebanon over there because he's a little closer to the water. Envy is a human trait. So once again, we're dealing with people here. As much as the single seed liners love coming along and dismissing a lot of this. But the judgment against him in Ezekiel 31 is this. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because it is exalted in stature and has set up its top among the thick boughs in the clouds, and its heart is proud of its height, I will deliver it into the hand of the mighty one of the nations. Once again, that's Jesus Christ. He shall surely deal with it. I have driven it out for its wickedness and lawlessness. Now, other places in the Old Testament narrative, Satan is considered to be the lawless one. Why? Because he wants you to break the law. That was his very first trick in the Garden of Eden. He came to to Eve and said, you're not going to really die when you do this, even though Yahweh God had said that. And that's exactly what he wanted to do all the way back then, should be pointed out. But Jesus Christ did overcome Satan at the cross, and that is confirmed in all four Gospels, that the last enemy to truly actually be overcome at the second and final advent, which is the return of Jesus Christ, will be death himself. Another name for Satan, because the lake of fire is reserved for the devil and his angels, reserved all the way from the beginning. Now, there's a lot that I could say here about Enoch and so forth. This is where they are reserved, and this is also where we get um, numerous other second witnesses as far as, you know, these things are concerned. But there is a great quote that I think would fit right here as well. And I should be able to find it momentarily. But it talks about the true seduction many times as well. And that's something I've covered in my sermons as well throughout the years. For example, in John chapter 8, verse 44, we know this many times, but Jesus Christ says this, Year of your father, singular, the devil, singular, and the lust of your father, singular, ye will do. He, singular, was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in truth because there is no truth in him, singular. When he, singular, speaketh a lie, he singularly 
speaketh of his, singular own. For he, singular, is a liar, and the Father, singular, of it. What I'm saying here is that Jesus Christ was addressing a multitude of Pharisees, more specifically a group of Jews here in John chapter 8, who were attempting to stone the woman taken in adultery. And he was preaching on hypocrisy. But nowhere in that statement when addressing a group or a multitude of Jews does he say, you are of your father a proverbial devils. Nowhere in there does he say, you are devils, even though that would have been closer to the truth than what the single seed liners want you to believe. But every single one of these instances is singular, straightforwardly saying that the devil, your father, the devil, and the loss of your father, you will do. So that ties perfectly into it, I believe, as well, because Jesus Christ dealt with it time and time again. Now, another aspect that I believe we should touch upon is this. Who is it that truly does lead us into temptation? Because the Judeo-Christians on one side want to believe that the devil makes every single person in the world do everything. And, you know, the Christians straightforwardly teach what is Scripture. But in Matthew chapter 6, verse uh, 13, Jesus Christ in his Lord's Prayer says, Lead us not into temptation. That is spoken to Yahweh God himself. And the reason that's spoken to Yahweh God is throughout all of the Old Testament narrative and new, it is Yahweh God who can either lead someone into temptation or not. A prime example of that is something we've already covered this morning, and that's found in Job chapter 1. The devil came and said, hey, I'm walking to and fro the, on top of the earth. I own the earth. The earth in the fullness, technically, in a proverbial sense, in the flesh, belongs to me. But, you know, he still had to go to Yahweh God to ask. That's the whole point. And so in Amos and in uh, other of the minor prophets, you've heard me preach on them before, where it says, Can there be evil done in a city, and Yahweh God hath not done it? Indeed, that's the whole point. Yahweh God may send evil. Yahweh God may send even destruction upon a city like Sodom and Gomorrah. But on all of these accounts, it wasn't Yahweh God himself who went to do it. It was usually nine times out of ten Yahweh God who sent his angels to go and destroy, like over, overthrow Sodom and Gomorrah and numerous other places. So what I'm saying is the devil is technically a part of Yahweh's divine plan, if you will, sitting at the left hand of Yahweh God himself. And the devil is he who Yahweh God chooses to go out and throw a monkey wrench within the system. And the reason it is kept separate from himself is because Yahweh God can have no part in evil. While he can create evil, while he can command you don't go after the knowledge of the, or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, only Yahweh God can actually physically touch evil and not be corrupted by it. The devil knows that the moment you touch of it, you will be deceived and you will most likely be taken over it. But while we find about the temptation of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 4, we find it also very shortly and, and spoken in paraphrase form in the first chapter of Mark, beginning in Mark chapter 1, verse 13, and it's found within Luke 4. As I said as well, it is also covered in the Gospel of John, but in bits and pieces. For example, for future study, dear kinsfolk, pay close attention. Turning stones into bread can be found in John chapter 6, verse 26 and verse 31. Jumping from on top of the temple because Yahweh God will give his uh, angels charge over them, or over Jesus Christ, can be found in John chapter 2, verse 18. And the devil offering Jesus Christ all the kingdoms of the world can be found in John chapter 6, verse 15.
But another place to also look is, once again, as I've mentioned, in Isaiah chapter 14. Because this is one such place where they like coming along and they say, well, that doesn't say the devil does it. That says the king of Assyria. No, it says this king of Assyria was in the garden of God. It says the king of Tyre was also in the garden of God. The reality of it is, is if Babylon means confusion, then the king of Babylon is guess who? It's obviously not Yahweh God, because God is not the author of confusion. But they love to come along, and they love to attribute the, to the Jew godlike powers that they've never possessed. The reality is, is that this king of Babylon that we read about here is straightforwardly the devil, and I'll confirm it. In Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verse 12, it says this, How thou art fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Stopping right there. How thou art fallen from heaven. What king of Babylon fell from heaven? What man has seen God at any time, gone to heaven, and was able to come back and live to tell the story? Rather, it seems more fitting to me that just like Revelation and Genesis confirm that this Wicked one, used once here in the form of Lucifer, because it's taken from the term Hellel, which also means Sataniel at its core root, fell from heaven, as Jesus Christ confirmed. He said, I behold Satan as heaven fall from, or I behold Satan fall from heaven. How thou art cut down to the ground, which did weakest the nations, the morning star, light bearer, the king of Babylon, Satan, Halel, or shining one, all of these terms are attributed to the devil elsewhere in scripture or elsewhere in non-canonized, meaning apocryphal or Gnostic text. But it says this, he weakened the nations, he weakened the races. Now granted, we can come along and say that the king of America is doing the same thing in the form of Barack Obama, but what spiritual influence do you think is behind Barack Obama doing many of the things he's doing? What spiritual influence is there behind Bush W or Bush Jr. even, when you realize that they want to usurp position over Yahweh God and be a king themselves, to be reverenced themselves, which is exactly, as we've covered tonight, cause Satan to fall. Because he was created perfect in his beginning, until iniquity was found within him. Iniquity was found within him when it was the devil saying, I want to be on equal footing with Yahweh God. Iniquity was found in Eve when Eve said, you know what, I want to be on equal footing with Adam. Iniquity was found within the 12 patriarchs when each one of them said, you know what, I want to be equal to one another. Yahweh God does not play favorites. Yahweh, I mean, Yahweh God does not play equal when it comes down to his children. Yahweh God can say to Jacob, the elder shall serve the younger. I hate Esau. But it is the way of a liberal to come along and say, well, God loves everybody. Why would God do that? Well, why would God create Satan? Obviously, the answer is found within Scripture. Verse 13 in Isaiah 14. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Now, stopping right there, this isn't a realm of earth. This is the congregation of Yahweh God. This is a person, deity, if you will, a Satan, coming along saying, I will be just like the Most High. I want the honor that is due the Most High. No man could say this. And even while Nimrod, when he attempted to build his Tower of Babylon, said, hey, we're going to build a tower that reaches to the heavens, it wasn't a literal statement. It was a statement saying we're going to go as high as we possibly can because that's as close to God as we become. 
But even Nimrod, in his building of the Tower of Babylon, never once said, I will be like the Most High. I will ascend into heaven and take it over by force. Jesus Christ straightforwardly said the kingdom of heaven is taken by force, or at least that it is under war, because people who want to take it by force are there. Continuing on, verse 14, Isaiah 14, Satan speaking, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Stopping right there. Be like the Most High? Is that or is that not the ideal behind every chauvinistic, pompous man down here who seemingly thinks, hey, I want the reverence due God. We see it in the workforce. We see it even in a superficial level amongst our neighborhood. We know who the town, who the neighborhood busybody is. We know who's going to gossip and be in other people's affairs. They're usually, nine times out of ten, the same exact person who will come along and accuse those same people he slanders later. But accusation, once again, is not only hardwired within the meaning of the name Sataniel, but it is his act. That is what he does. He is considered the accuser of the brethren, and as Obadiah and myself have pointed out time and time again, be weary when we come across people who say, hey, you know what, I'm part of the body of Christ, but all they can seemingly do is spend all their time attacking other people. But Satan continues, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Once again, above the clouds, meaning above the sky. He wants to take over the kingdom of heaven, always has, and this is the reason why he is so able and so prone to twist the law of God and confuse people. If we walk into your average 501c3 tax-exempt Judeo-Christian pimp pulpit out there that litter our land on any given Sunday, and you go up with them there, they will tell you, hey, you don't have to follow the law. The law is done away with. Why? Because they're in bed with the lawless one. They'll come along and say, you know what, we want to feed the hungry. We want to clothe the naked. We want to do all these things for inner city youth. We want to do this for people in Africa and Jamaica. We want to send missionaries, but we don't care about the people in Melbourne. We don't care about the people in Atlanta. There's something wrong there. And that's exactly the mindset and where it comes from. Uh, Yahweh God says this to Satan. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Now stopping right there, it should be pointed out that the no devil will come along and say this is just man. This is the king of Babylon. Yet there is only one person in all of scripture ever who was sentenced to perish in hell. And that just so happens to be the devil, a.k.a. the son of perdition. That is what perdition means, to perish, a son born to perish. So here we see a second witness of that very statement thou shalt be destroyed you will be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit continuing on verse 16 they that shall see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee saying is this the man that made the earth to tremble who did shake kingdoms that's the reality of it all well they'll come along and say see it says man right there yeah huh, Satan's a man where did we miss that point because in Revelation 666 is a number of men that Satan controls men and has his own children here on earth, just as Yahweh God has his own sons that he dictates to through predestination, through prophecy, and, and many other methods. But so also does the devil have his minions. These are they that uh, David straightforwardly says will rise up early, seeking what new evils they can invent, who can only do evil nonstop. Now, why would that be? Because lawlessness abounds. And it says in Scripture that in the end times, 
The love of many shall wax cold because iniquity abounds. That is the world we live in today where the devil can come along and say, hey, you know what? It's okay to serve other gods. It's okay to bow to graven images. It's okay to covet, to commit adultery, to steal, kill, and murder, and all of these things. And the Judeo-Christian buys it hook, line, and seeker. Why? Because the Judeo-Christian, according to the Barna Group, less than three years ago, stated that a majority of them also did not believe in the devil. And it stands to reason, why would they believe in the devil when they don't really believe in God? But the point I'm trying to make with that is if 80% of your so-called, quote-unquote, Judeo-Christians don't even believe that the devil is literal, then it is more universalist to come along and say there's no devil, because that's what Judeo-Christianity teaches, that's what Judaism teaches, than to come along and say, hey, you know what, this sect of people or that sect of people may have their own covenant with Yahweh God, which is more scripturally confirmed according to how I read it. Don't let me go off into the side teachings of Hagar and all of these other covenants. In fact, I've even released a sermon this weekend covering just that. But again, we see that Yahweh God tells him and casts him out and says, many people are going to stand there and say, is this the man that deceived all the nations? And think about how beautiful that will be. Think about how if even Obama were to come right now Shake off false pretenses, show his real face, basically come down to where the metal meets the road, stop BSing people, and say, hey, I want to take your guns, I want to take your constitution because I hate your God. How many people out there, liberals, Christians even, quote unquote, who voted him into office will literally be doing the same exact thing that will happen after Satan is cast into hell? They'll be scratching their heads saying, is this the man that deceived the entire nations? Yes, it is. And we ourselves allowed it as a nation, as a proverbial whole. We allowed it. Why? Because first and foremost, we allowed the devil to come and say, hey, he doesn't exist. And while we were thinking that the devil didn't exist, we were partaking of the devil's works, the devil's fruit, the devil's media, and the devil's public school system which was infiltrating the brains of our children, teaching them also that there is no accountability for sin. That is what the devil wants, and that is why I've taught from this pulpit time and time again. He was the anointed cherub that covereth, and I'd like to cover that actually very shortly here as well, because I'm still in Ezekiel chapter 28 as well. And in 28, where I had said in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 17, Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty, it also says this, Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee down to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. All the way back in Isaiah 14, what did it just say? What did we just cover? Again, they that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made all the nations to tremble? The same exact death sentence, if you will, pronounced upon the same exact deity, who just like our God, whether you call him Yahweh, Yahweh Shua, Yahashua, or Yahivahi, whatever name you want to attribute it, Yahweh God has many names, as does the devil. And only a fool would come along and say he doesn't when, hey, here's the name of the devil, How you know, Bar- Barack Hussein, that's one, Barack Obama, that's the name of the devil as well, because he's doing the devil's work. But that's an entirely different study for a different day. But pay close attention to this right here. Thus says Lord God, this is Ezekiel chapter 31, back in Ezekiel 31, verse 15. 
King James this round. Thus saith the Lord L. In the day when thou went down to the grave, I caused a mourning. I covered the deep for him. I restrained the floods thereof, and great waters were stayed, and I caused Lebanon to mourn for him. All the trees of the field fainted for him. I made all the nations to shake at the sound of his fall when I cast him down to hell with them that descend to the pit. Who descends with the devil to the pit, according to the book of Revelation? According to the second chapter of the second epistle of Peter, the devil and his false prophets. Another way of saying that would be, hell is reserved for the devil and his angels. Those are his false prophets. And those who are reserved, again, cast to hell with them that descend to the pit, and all the trees of Eden, the choice and best Lebanon, all that drink water, shall be comforted in the nether parts of the earth. So we see once again, and uh, Ezekiel 31 actually ends on this note. Verse 18 says this, To whom art thou thus, like in glory and in greatness, among the trees of Eden? Question. Yet shalt thou be brought down with the trees of Eden into the nether parts of the earth. Thou shalt lie in the midst of the uncircumcised with them that be slain by the sword. Again, sword is the sword of the Lord, that is Yahweh. This is Pharaoh and all his multitude, saith the Lord El. Now Pharaoh is another type. And Pharaoh would be considered a form of Satan as well, because there are many prophecies against him as well. But the verse I was trying to get to is, would be this. When I covered it as well at the very beginning, chapter 31 in the Secrets of Enoch, that would be Enoch, book 2. Verse 1, Adam has life on earth, and I created a garden in the east, that he should observe the testament and keep the command. I made the heavens open to him that he should see the angels singing the song of victory and the gloomless light. And he was continuously in paradise. And the devil understood that I wanted to create another world, or another way of saying that would be cosmos, age, or order. Because Adam was Lord on earth to rule and control it. That's the difference. That's why the devil fell. While the devil sat upon the mercy seat, while the devil was confirmed to be the anointed cherub that covereth the mercy seat of God himself. So also this is the reason why they made a pact, why they chose to fall, because the devil couldn't have Adam being Lord on earth to rule and control it. Verse 4 of chapter 31 of Enoch 2. The devil is the, is the evil spirit of lower places. As a fugitive, he made Satana. Satana elsewhere in Scripture was transliterated as Diana. A nice way of putting Satana would be this, the graven image. So just as the Jews come along and they call Jesus Christ our idol or our graven image, so it should stand to reason that this is exactly what the devil does. Work through images. From the heavens, his name was Sataniel. Sataniel, or the impious one. Hasatan in Hebrew means the adversary leading, meaning it, here it refers to the fact that he was lead adversary, or none other than Lucifer, like we've covered from Isaiah chapter 14. Thus he became different from all the other angels, but his nature did not change his intelligence as far as his understanding of righteous and sinful things. Get that point. Even though... The only God cast the devil out according to this Enochian account. Even though the devil tried to lift himself up and say, I will be like the Most High, even though he was cast out and his visage was changed, according to all of these accounts, it did not change his intelligence, his wisdom. The devil knows right from wrong because the law, if you want to, for lack of a better term, would be written upon his heart. If not written upon his heart, then he would know it. 
He protected it. That was his initial job, and that's why he's able to pervert it so easily. Uh, let me unmute some folks. Okay, and continuing on. And he understood his condemnation and the sin which he had sinned before. Therefore, he conceived thought against Adam. In such form, he entered and seduced Eve, but did not touch Adam. But I cursed ignorance, but what I had blessed previously, those I did not curse. I cursed not man, nor the earth, nor other creatures, but man's evil fruit and his works. And so here it is in Enoch. Enoch, once again, as he did in so numerous places throughout all of his books, and I believe he wrote in upwards of 600, 400 books. But in those books, he straightforwardly says he didn't curse men, he didn't curse the earth, he didn't curse the creatures, but man's evil fruit. Because why? That is a representation of it. If the devil was able to, to be impious from his creation, not only does that prove that we have free will, as Obadiah and myself have pointed out last week, that we have the ability to make a choice because the devil did, and most assuredly Adam did, he had the choice, but it proves as well that he entered, quote-unquote, and seduced Eve. It also says he does not touch Adam, and that confirms, that's confirmed in our biblical accounts as well, because our biblical accounts say Eve partook of the fruit and gave to Adam, and she partook, he partook with her. So be that as it may, it should be pointed out that Sataniel, as a name, means the impious one. He is the adversary of God, which is what Sataniel or Satanel means. An adversary of God who will spend all of his time attacking the law because, again, he is the lawless one. It is through the law that we are able to remove and purge certain elements from our society. It is through the law that his deeds are made manifest. And so it should stand the reason why that is, why, you know, the devil can come along and um, want you to believe that the law is done away with. Why? Because all of a sudden then homosexuals don't get cast out anymore. All of a sudden uh, they're accepted within the, uh, within the congregation and so forth. And that's exactly what the devil wants. He wants to call evil good and good evil. That's what he has always done. And so this belief of no devil that has infiltrated Christian identity, I believe that we straightforwardly proved historically in the 11th century was introduced by a rabid rabbi who was attempting to prove that there was no devil, most likely to protect himself from or his father from the devil. But very briefly, I also want to cover from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 4, the temptation in the wilderness of Jesus Christ. It's only about 15 verses. I'll go through it very quickly because I want to point out the modus operandi of the devil and how it correlates all perfectly to Ezekiel chapter 28, Ezekiel 31, Job chapter 1, everywhere else, and including Enoch as well. <laughs> verse 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Being 40 days tempted of the devil, stopping right there, 40 is the number of probation. 40 means that the devil was, 40 means that it was a probatory, if you will, or a probationary temptation, and of course Jesus Christ overcame it. But whenever you see the number 40, always remember probation. It doesn't last forever, it'll only last for a short amount of time. But it was Jesus Christ, 40 days being tempted of the devil, and in those days he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterward hungered. Now stopping right there, notice the flesh. Once again, Jesus Christ hadn't eaten. He was fasting in the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights, quote-unquote. And that is when the devil attempts to come to him. 
That and directly after baptism, because he's weakened. Why? Because he appeals to the flesh. He is the tempter. So when we read in James again that every man is drawn aside by his own flesh and tempted, this is a perfect example of how that's not true. Because if Jesus Christ was able in a hundred state to not do what the devil told him to do, then so also can you and I. Verse 3, And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answering him said, It is written, stopping right there before I even continue. Jesus Christ, in all three, three rebukes on this, all three retorts that he gives the devil, says it is written. He takes it back to the Old Testament, more specifically the book of Deuteronomy, and he corrects the devil again. Because the devil will take scripture, he'll drop a word, he'll add a word, he'll leave out a part, he'll take a part from here or there, and he'll vomit it up as his own, and it suddenly has no semblance to what Yahweh God commanded. This was seen when he attempted to seduce Eve. In the very beginning, he said, yea, hath God said? Of course God said that, and Eve knew it. And even though Eve was ignorant of the law, just like man's law, they were charged as a couple, and they were found guilty as one. And that, dear kinsfolk, is why I'm looking forward to next Wednesday's study, because we're going to attack and at least tackle the concept of polygamy versus monogamy. But be that as it is. It is written that every man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Do you believe it? Because you truly do not need physical food. This was seen in Elijah. This was seen in numerous accounts. If your faith is right with Yahweh God, if you're good with Yahweh God, you truly can live by every word of God. And what good does it do you to have a meal here or a meal there and be completely ignorant of the word? Does you no good because reality is, is whatever you stockpile within your barn will be taken from you because the Bible tells you how to keep that which is already yours. Verse 5 in St. Luke chapter 4. And the devil, taking him up to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. In a moment of time. Not just everything. Hey, you want it? He showed him all the kingdoms of the world in one moment of time. That, again, is something that a supernatural deity can do, not just a mere man. And the devil said unto him, All this power I will give thee in the glory of them that is delivered unto me. By who? Well, we already read it this morning. Or this evening, dear kinsfolk, Job chapter 1, it was given him of Yahweh God, who said, go and walk to and fro upon the earth. But not, but not to digress. Delivered unto me, and whomsoever I will give it. If thou therefore will worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written. Once again, stopping right there. Now he rebukes them. Just like the angels, who do not bring railing accusation against the devil, they rebuke him and say, get thee behind me, time and time again. And that's exactly what you and I, as Christians, should do when it comes to dealing with the devil. Get behind me. Don't waste your time. How much time are we going to spend worrying about what the godless or the atheists do? But it is written, what? Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Now, pay close attention. This was Jesus Christ saying this to Satan. Now, the devil is offering Jesus Christ all the worlds, all the kingdoms of the world, if you will, for lack of a better term, all the powers that are on earth. And Jesus Christ, Christ retorts by saying, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. In essence, once again, we see Jesus Christ saying he is God, that he created the devil, and it was ludicrous for the devil to even come along and suggest it. But did it stop the devil from doing it? 
Oh, no, indeed. And that's how the devil operates. The devil doesn't care how stupid it looks. The devil doesn't care if the lie is so transparent. He cares more about telling the lie time on and time out throughout the centuries so that someday it will be seen as truth. But that's his retort. Get behind me. It's written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Verse 9, And he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from thence. Now this is where he twisted it, because it's written all the way back in, uh, hold on a second. <laughs> I'm sure Eli James knows this. Psalms chapter 91, verse 11. And 91 verse 11 perhaps will cover it momentarily, but that's not what it said. The devil twisted it. He says, cast thyself down from here, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee. In fact, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and cover that now so we're able to better point out exactly how it is, exactly what I'm saying the devil does do. And the devil perverts scripture for his own gain. And this is one such example. Jesus Christ said, it is written, because this is how it was truly written. And verse, uh, Psalm 91, verse 11 says this. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. Now, a big difference, because the prophecy that the devil twisted was already written right there in the words of David. But when the devil came to Jesus Christ, he says, well, it is written, he shall give his angels to charge over thee to keep thee. And in their hands shall they bear thee up, lest at any time thou shalt dash thy foot against the stone. Verse 12. And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. Period. That's all he said, and that's the last thing he said. When the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season, not forever, not for good. And while it says in the scripture, resist the devil and he will flee from you, what the scripture, what that paragraph doesn't actually go into explain is that the devil will come back. And he'll come back time and time again. Which is why we must keep our vessels clean so that we can be imparted with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because even when a demon is cast out of somebody, it will wander to and fro on the earth and find another vessel to hop back into. And this is confirmed as well. The devil left him for a season. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit of Galilee, and there went out fame throughout. So that's the whole point. He withstood the devil, and that is probably one of the shorter accounts of the temptations of Jesus Christ. But what I wanted to point out was the fact that Jesus Christ continually took it back to the Word of God and said, the Word of God says this, what you're telling me is something entirely different. So, it is Satan that can appear time and time again in numerous forms. Many people want to say he appeared to Adam in the form of Lilith, be that as it may. That's a study for another day. But Satan appeared to uh, Sarah in the book of Jasher, why, in quotes such as this. Jasher, verse 23, verse 80, or, uh, chapter 23, verse 86. Behold, Satan came to Sarah in the shape of an old man. And he came and stood before her, and he said to her, I spoke falsely to you, for Abraham did not kill his son, and he is not dead. And when she heard the word, her joy was so extremely violent on account of her son that her soul went out through joy. She died and was gathered to her people. And so here's one such account in a Gnostic text, or a non-canonized text as well, proving that the devil is able to take numerous forms, just as Yahweh God can take numerous forms as well. And here he is appearing to Sarah saying, oh, Isaac's not dead. Surprise! And she dies. So whatever it is, there's always a string attached to many of the uh, gifts, if you want to call them that, that he gives you. 
certain other places, uh, uh, Simeon in the uh, Testament of the uh, Twelve Patriarchs, which is also found in the Lost Books of Eden and the or the Lost Books of the Bible and the Forgotten Books of Eden, according to, uh, for example, First Infancy Chapter Six, which I myself have covered in the past. It says this. There was in the city a gentlewoman who, as she went down one day to the river to bathe, behold, cursed Satan leapt upon her in the form of a serpent, and folded himself about her belly, and every night lay upon her. This woman, seeing the Lady St. Mary and the Lord Christ and the infant in her bosom, asked the Lady St. Mary that she would give the child that she would give her the child to kiss and carry in her arms. When she had consented, and as soon as the woman had moved the child, Satan left her and fled away. Nor did the woman ever afterwards see him. So that's in infancy, chapter 6. Another such place, we already covered that. Secrets of Enoch, chapter 31, verse 4. And uh, Simeon, for example, the testimony of Simeon, chapter 1, verse 8. And I set my mind against him to destroy him, because the prince of deceit sent forth the spirit of jealousy, and blinded my mind so that I regarded him not as a brother, nor did I spare even Jacob, my father. Now, if you've been listening to this ministry for any amount of time, you'll know that Greg Howard, and I believe Eli James, covered this very gospel probably no more than three months ago, where they covered the... Uh, the testimony of all the twelve patriarchs, and once again we see lots of racial images, and we see that this deity, known as the devil, is real, very literal, and simply cannot be unsubstantiated by all of these tools that the enemy wants to come along. What I'm saying is this: Strong's does not define the does not define Satan as a mere adversary. Strong's defines Satan as an adversary, specifically the devil. Strong's does not define angels as merely messengers, but messengers, specifically the archangels of God, or however you try to cut it, it simply does not fly. So I have a lot more to say, and I can go on for hours. You know me, Obadiah, but that's about the girth of it. There's a lot more, but uh, what do you think of that? Well, I think you've just given us all a college education on why there is a Satan, why there is a devil, Jeremy. I mean, that was excellent. I'm going to have to listen to that several times over to, to, to catch all of it. I mean, my brain's a, a bit slow on these things, but uh, there were so many wonderful examples you gave there. I couldn't even begin to, to list them all uh, now, but um, yeah, it, it just the thing that gets me about this is that if you're going to take Satan out of the Bible, you're going to have to replace him with something else. And the things that people try to replace him with are just completely absurd. Like you're reading out the, um, the, the first chapter of Job, ch chapter or verse 6 of the Amplified Version. I was going to do that myself, but I'm glad you do it. did it, save me from doing it. But it talks about how now there was a day when the sons, the angels of God, came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan. Well, I was reading one, one guy who's into the no-devil doctrine. He believed that when it, when, when it talks about the sons, the angels of God, presenting themselves to Yahweh, that it's our prayers, you know, so, which is ridiculous. I mean, the Bible does say, you know, enter his gates with thanksgiving in your heart and into his courts with praise, you know, we... You know, our, our praise and our prayers do come before the Lord. But here it's clear, very clear, that Yahweh is having a conversation with Satan. Yahweh doesn't have conversations with our prayers. I mean, it just doesn't work that way. And, and one of the theories as to what, who Satan was in, in the Garden of Eden was that he was just evil thought, an evil thought that came into, into Eve's mind. Well, well, how did Satan make with, well, how did Eve mate with a, a thought? I mean, it just doesn't work. 
Um, now, now, if you look at um, Chronicles chapter, chapter 21, verse 1, this is the Amplified Version, it says, Satan, an adversary, stood up against Israel and stirred up David. Oh, sorry, I've got a little printing error here. I'm not sure what that says. Uh, against Israel. Something to that effect. Sorry about that. I've got a huge black smudge on the last part of the, the chapter there. Uh, uh, the verse there. And in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1, the Amplified Version, it says, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So in Chronicles 21, verse 1, we have Satan stirring up David. But then in 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, it says, Yahweh did. So what was going on? Well, that's the beauty of the book of Job, isn't it, Jeremy? That it gives us a behind-the-scenes glimpse of what goes on between Satan and, uh, and Yahweh. The Bible talks about how Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Let's not fool ourselves, folks, into thinking that what happened in Job, in the early chapters of Job, was an isolated incident. I mean, Satan must come before Yahweh on a regular basis accusing various brethren. And clear, clearly, so, so what we have in, in Chronicles 21 verse 1, verse 1 and 2 Samuel 24 verse 1, we don't have a contradiction. It's not Yahweh being his own Satan because, you know, Yahweh isn't a bad thought. He, you know, if we're going to say Satan is just merely the works of the flesh, well, Yahweh isn't the works of the flesh. He's his own being and he's a righteous being. Clearly what happened is that Yahweh, gave, Yahweh was angered against Israel. The Bible says that. Um, and it's interesting to note that he says his anger was kindled against Israel collectively because clearly Israel had chosen um, Saul over, uh, over him as a ruler and you know, they were ultimately going to pay the price for it and, and they did when David um, you know, um, did, the, did the census um, thousands of people ended up, ended up dying you know, yeah, because Yahweh's anger was kindled against Israel but clearly what's happened in these two verses we don't see a contradiction here yes Yahweh was angered against against Israel but what he did he used Satan as his agent as his vessel if you will of that judgment he used, he allowed Satan to to move upon David and to stir him up and to to make this census and that's clearly what happens in the book of Job he gave permission to Satan to put those sicknesses and make those terrible things happen to, to Job. He gave, gave, those, gave Satan permission to work all that evil. And, you know, that might seem unpalatable, unpalatable, unpalatable get it right, Obi, to, to some people. But um, Yahweh is constantly, is constantly testing us and trying us. And often he uses, clearly he uses the devil to do the, these things. And, and there is absolutely no way you can read the book of Job um, other than Satan was an individual being who presented himself before Yahweh and was, and, and was set apart from the angels, even though Satan had been an angel. He, he was different in, in the way he was then. He was, a, the Bible says, and Satan, the adversary and accuser, the adversary singular, the advers adversary with the defi definite article before his name. And it's interesting, I was reading one commentary, Jeremy, where um, in the early chapters of the Bible it talks about, uh, in the Hebrew, it always has the definite article with, with Satan. It's always, so if you were translating it, you'd all, if you're going to translate it literally, you'd have to say the Satan as opposed to Satan. But then afterwards, um, the, the, the writers of, of, of the Old Testament dispensed with the definite article and just made him Satan. So Satan became what he, his, his name, you know, 
the definition of his name, he, he sort of absorbed that and they, they didn't have to use that anymore because Satan was what his name was, if you get what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I understand completely because it's paralleled as well when, when Adam or the Ahadam became known as just Adam. You know, and what you're saying as well fits perfectly. I'm reminded of the verse where it says in the scripture that it pleased Yahweh God to bruise the son. Now, Yahweh God didn't physically come down and, and beat Jesus Christ and spit in his face and give him a crown of thorns. Actually, he used the devil to bring that about, and he used the devil's children to do that. But the glory was attributed to, G to uh, Yahweh God, meaning that whatever the devil does, like we've already pointed out, he has to ask permission. And whatever he does, it has usually always worked to the glory of God, like, just like Judas. And I think that's why Christ could tell Judas, it would have been better for you to have never been born than to be the one to betray the Son of Man. You know, and so in a lot of ways, that's the whole point. Whether the devil entered into Judas or Peter, and they say, he said, get thee behind me. These are those places in Scripture where adversary was mistransliterated, actually, and where I believe a lot of the, uh, the no-devils get their belief or the, or the fuel. But like I said, Strong's doesn't define it that way, and the ancient Hebrew doesn't. And what you're saying is perfect, it falls into place with that. Because if you really wanted to get down to it, it doesn't mean adversary. It would mean the adversary, singular again, just like Christ taught in John eight forty four, your father, the devil, singular, not plural, not a bunch of demons and not a, not, you know, a proverbial rebuilt Babylon, but literal children of the devil, like he taught in his parable of the tares and the wheat. Now, By the way, I, I should that, add that, that oh, uh, Brother yep. Lloyd Davies is on the, on the line, so... All right. Hello, Lord. Well, um, just continuing on for a second, um, sure. I'd like to, to read that account of Peter. Um, it talks about uh, this in Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 to 23. And as per usual, I'm reading from the Amplified Version. In 21, we read, From that time forth, Jesus began clearly to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the high priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised from death. Then Peter took him aside to speak to him privately and began to reprove and charge him sharply, saying, God forbid, Lord, this must never happen to you. Verse 23. But Jesus turned away from Peter and said to him, Get behind me, Satan. You are in my way, an offence and hindrance and a snare to me. For you are minding what partakes not of the nature and quality of God, but of men. Now, of course, the no devil doctrine people take this to mean, well, if, if Peter can be Satan, anyone can be Satan, so there is no Satan. But, Jeremy, let me ask you this. Let's say somebody was uh, ratted on you and was a traitor to you in some way. Um, you might call that person, for example, a Benedict Arnold. Now, now, because you call that person a Benedict Arnold, you don't mean that that person is literally Benedict Arnold. All you're saying, because, ooh, well, let's face it, Benedict Arnold was dead many years. But uh, you're saying that that person, what you're saying essentially is that person is exhibiting characteristics of Benedict Arnold. I mean, we often use other people to characterise a particular person in some way. Like a friend of mine dressed up very dapperly one night and I said to him, oh, you look like James Bond. Now, when I say he looked like James Bond, I don't mean he's literally James Bond because James Bond is just a work of fiction. But I, I, I mean, you know, we, we often... We do that quite often, don't we? We'll, we'll say that some, we'll, we'll describe somebody using somebody else, and clearly this is what's, what's happening here. Um, you know, the fact that um, at this particular point, um, 
Peter exhibited characteristics of Satan in that he wanted to come between um, Christ and Christ going to um, the cross and fulfilling his mission. Of course, you know, Peter had the best of intentions. He just didn't want his beloved Lord to die. And I suppose you could say that maybe Satan directly influenced Peter here. That's certainly possible. But if we read in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, this is the Amplified Version, it says, But he who commits sin, who practices evil doing, is of the devil, takes his character from the evil one. Now, now this verse just right there disproves the no devil doctrine because how can we take our character from the devil, from the evil one, if if all Satan it is, is just the works of the flesh and just our evil thoughts, because we have that in us by default anyway, don't we? We're going to sin if we don't follow Yahweh's way. You know, we have it. Even Christians, even Christian identists have evil thoughts. You know, silly to deny it. So clearly we're speaking about two different things, and it's talking about here the character from the evil one. So at that particular point in time, Peter exhibited a characteristic, a characteristic of Satan in that he came between Christ and the fulfilment of his mission. It's that simple. And, uh, uh, and, you know, just people say, oh, because, you know, Satan is just an adversary, just, a, you know, uh, of God, anyone can be a Satan. Well, you know, by the same token, the fact that we are, uh, we are types of Christ, you know, the, the Bible says, the, well, if you look at the Greek word for Christ, it means the anointed one in Christians, and that comes from the same derivative. It means we are the... Um, we are the anointed ones. But just because you and I and other Christians are part of the body of Christ and as the scripture says are in Christ and have that spiritual connection with him and it makes us kind of small Christ with a lowercase c, it doesn't make us deity Christ. It doesn't make us the Jesus Christ. There is a difference between the servants and the master. Yeah, exactly. And when you say that, I'm reminded of how people in this latter era will call each other Nimrod. You know, you're such a Nimrod, but they're not literally saying that's Nimrod who builded the, the Tower of Babel, but they're saying they're attributed to Nimrod or a fool like Nimrod. So that's a great analogy as well. And I think one of the things that people miss is the teaching that whether he says it to Peter or he says it to the devil in the wilderness, he says, get thee behind me period. The devil is behind him. And so that's why, you know, a couple months ago, there were a couple CI pastors who were arguing over where, where the devil is. I understood what the other guy was saying, because in a lot of ways, if, if Jesus Christ says, get thee behind me, well, then the devil's still there, at least in a proverbial sense. But that's a whole other side issue, is where is the devil today? And we should probably point that out as well. According to Enoch, or the Enochian scripture that we covered today, it says that when those when they fell, when they bound an implication, those fallen angels on Mount Hermon and took from among the daughters of Adam that we can read about in Genesis 5, that they were held, they were taken, they were reserved. They're the wandering stars, and they're the ones that are going to come for a latter judgment, but that their demons are free to, to roam the earth. So on that token, a lot of times we, we tell people, we say, hey, whatever possessed you to do that? And people don't even realize exactly what they're saying. But many times we are possessed, whether we're possessed of the, of the Holy Spirit or we're possessed of demons is a side issue. But I'm reminded of Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, when he was going to court for his killings in Los Angeles. He had a pentagram etched into his, in, into his hand, and he was telling the jury that he felt like he was possessed of the devil. He was possessed of demons to go out and kill. And lo and behold, the liberals, oh, there's no devil. 
There's no demons. You just had a hard childhood. So it was kind of telling to me in a lot of ways. I think Richard Ramirez was telling the truth, saying he was possessed by a demonic spirit to murder. He would have to be, scripturally. Now, now uh, this touches on the servant issue. Uh, uh, an important distinction, distinction here, and it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 to 15, and it's the amplified version. It says in verse 13, For such men are false apostles, spurious counterfeits, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles, special, special messengers of Christ the Messiah. And it is no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. So it is not surprising if his servants also masquerade as ministers, ministers of righteousness, but their end will correspond with their, with their deeds. So here we see an important differentiation between Satan, singular, and his servants, plural. Now, now, if the servants were Satan collectively, then it would have to read Satan himself masquerades as angels of light. But it says he masquerades as an singular angel of light. So huge difference here, a very important distinction in these few verses. Yeah, indeed. And that's the thing I like bringing up is that, you know, every time we see it in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, and Revelation even comes full circle, if you think about it, where it says that great dragon, also known as the devil, Satan, who deceives the nations, was cast out. That's the reason why he was considered the serpent in, in the book of Genesis. But all of these are literal, you know, a literal singular deity. They're never this proverbial thing. What, I, what I've noticed is a lot of the single seed liners will come along and say, well, you know, Eve, Eve is uh, Eve's the mother of our race. Uh, they love saying that. I don't like people saying that Eve was corrupted, but nowhere does it say Eve is the mother of our race. It's, Adam clearly called her, her name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So if she's the mother of all living, then dual seed line's correct because she obviously must be the mother of both the tares and the wheat company. And so that, I think, is quite telling, is they'll even skew, they'll skew the words of Eve, or, or Adam, really, in this regard, and say, oh, Eve's the mother of the white race only. No, she's the mother of both, and that's why Jews look white, and that's why tares look like wheat, and sometimes goats even look like sheep. That's what makes our enemy so dangerous, and why all these a lot of the Negroes and the Mexicans can't differentiate between the two, so they hate whites instead of knowing, you know, because they don't know what a Jew is. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, the Amplified Version, the Apostle Paul writes, And to keep me from being puffed up and too much elated by the exceeding greatness, preeminence of these revelations, there was given me a thorn, a splinter, in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to rack and buffet and harass me, to keep me from being excessively exalted. So, um, you know... If people are Satan in and of themselves, simply by through their being, you know, adversaries to Yahweh and, and His Word, then how can Satan? How, how can you have a messenger? Because in order to be a messenger of someone, there has to be that someone. You know what I mean? So I, I mean, here we see a direct contradiction to the to the um, to the No Devil doctrine. Because you know, if people are their own Satan. You know, if anyone who is an adversary is Satan, then how can you be your own messenger? I mean, it just, it just yeah, defies logic. Exactly. It's ridiculous. Exactly. And, and, and so it, it's like First Timothy chapter five verse fifteen, where 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 he says, uh, "Some are already turned aside after Satan." Well, I mean, he's not saying that everyone turned aside to their own lust, their own flesh. They turned aside 
to the way of Satan, which is rebellion. Now, now this kind of um, touches upon the book of Job here, and we're going to look at this from a, a kind of an unusual perspective tonight. It's a, a well-known scripture, and it has to do with Judas. It comes from John chapter 13, verse 27, amplified yet again. Then after he, Judas, had taken the bit of food, Satan entered into and took possession of Judas. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do more swiftly than you seem to intend and make quick work of it. Now I've got a, an interesting question for you all, and this is a trick question. Who was Christ speaking to? Was he speaking to Judas or Satan? Exactly. It's a good point. <laughs> it's a good point because, yeah. Oh, no, go, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, that's that's the, that's kind of what I was trying to make when it comes to a lot of these earthly rulers, you know. If we're either a slave to Christ or we're a slave to mammon, one way or another, we're going to love one and hate the other, and, and that's the whole point. When somebody's got a Muslim spirit like Barack Obama, he is the devil. It's that simple. I mean, you know, he's under his influence, obviously. And, and the Bible says that the, in the Amplified Version, it says that Satan took possession of Judas. So what does that mean? That means he took control of him. He, he possessed, he controlled Judas. So when Christ was speaking to Judas, he was speaking to Judas on a superficial level, but who he was really speaking to was the devil. And we have the same situation as we have in the book of Job. Clearly, this time, um, you know, Christ, who is God in the flesh body, was telling Satan to, what to do. You know, you have... I've given you this particular power, now, now go and see it happen. In this case, it was organizing his crucifixion. Satan was all into that because he thought, oh, I'll be able to get rid of Christ. You know, you know, Satan didn't know that Jesus Christ was going to you know, rise from the dead. So, um, so, so it, it's, I thought that, that was an interesting way of looking at that particular verse. You know, just who, who was Christ speaking to? Technically, he's speaking to both of them, but I think mainly he was speaking to Satan. And yeah. so, so therefore... So therefore Satan was somebody or something outside of Judas and not within him, even though Judas was a Jew, not a Judean, but, you know, a, a, an Edomite or a Canaanite. Um, you know, he was of Satan, but Satan, the outside agency, entered into him and possessed him. Amen. And I think that's, that was actually confirmed as well in the Maniac of Gadara narrative as well, because... You know, once him and the disciples, Christ and the disciples, came over to the country of the Gadarenes, they met a man who was bound in things, you know, chains and fetters, who was cutting himself. And the scriptural account says that he was not in his right mind. But as soon as Jesus Christ says, you know, cast the demon out, first, of, first and foremost, they said, we are legion. What have we to do with you, thou son of the most high God? There were numerous demons within this man. But as soon as Jesus Christ cast those demons into the pig and the, and the, or the pigs, and the pigs ran down the hill and drowned in the ocean, our Bibles say he was sitting in his right mind. So therefore, when he was under the influence of the demons, or the devil, Diablos, for lack of a better term, you know, when Christ was saying, you know, get out from him or, or come out from him, he was speaking to the devil. That's how he was able to cast them out. So I think what you're saying is a great analogy in that as well, because the maniac of Gadara wasn't really just the man of Gadara or the disciple, actually the later disciple, until after the demons were cast out, and scripturally he was a different person. Now, in Revelation uh, chapter 12, verses 7 to 10, this is a famous uh, scripture here. This is the Amplified Version yet again. Then, verse 7, Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels went forth to battle with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. 
For they were defeated. There was no room found for them in heaven any longer. And the huge dragon was cast down and out, that age-old serpent who is called the devil and Satan. I mean, could it be any clearer? He, and it elaborates, he who is the seducer, deceiver of all humanity the world over and was forced out and down to the earth and his angels were flung out along with him. So he can't be work, simply works of the flesh and bad thoughts. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And then it says in, in verse 10, Then I heard a strong, loud voice in heaven saying, Now it has come, the salvation and the power and the kingdom, the dominion, the reign of our God and the power, the serenity, the authority of his Christ, the Messiah, for the accuser of our brethren, he who keeps bringing before our God charges against them day and night has been cast out. Clearly talking about Satan. We see that magnificent example of his, uh, you know, accusing the brethren, you know, bringing before God, you know, charges against the brethren in, in the opening chapters of Job. I mean, it all dovetails per perfectly with there being a personal, actual devil. Yeah, absolutely. And I believe a lot of the single seed liners get their premise from, you know, John, where he talks about in his latter epistles, he gives the definition of an antichrist. And of course, we know that definition is anyone who denies Jesus Christ has come in the flesh or anyone who denies he's come, you know, as Messiah or is Messiah, for lack of a better term. But the fact that anyone who denies Jesus Christ is Messiah is also considered antichrist doesn't mean that there's no singular son of perdition or the leader of all antichrists in the form of the devil is what I'm saying, because that's, that's the whole point. Antichrist doesn't mean opposed to. Actually, in Strong's, antichrist means instead of Christ, or someone who wants to come as a replacement of Christ, or someone who's, who comes saying, hey, I am Christ. And to me, that fits perfectly in what we discussed tonight in Ezekiel 28, in Ezekiel 31, and even in Job 1, 1 because all of these accounts say the same thing, that Satan fell because he wanted, to, he wanted the reverence do Yahweh God, you know, but it doesn't say, oh, well, he's just one antichrist, or it doesn't say he's a proverbial, you know, a proverbial sense. That's what I think. To me, it, it makes, it's more cloudable and makes more sense that Eve was deceived, was beguiled, which is what that means. And in fact, Eli and myself discussed this in depth at the 2008 Feast of Tabernacles. Just the word beguiled and what it means, it's not necessarily trickery, it's deception. And that's what the devil, you know, seemingly always operates in is deception, whatever it is. And his children do the same exact thing through the media, or even those who call themselves CI. They'll come along and they'll say, well, that doesn't really mean what it means. Yeah, it really does. And in fact, that's one more thing I should point out. In that account where you just read in the Greek, Satan, from First uh, Timothy, or, or that I read, it's from Satanus, once again, of Chaldee origin, according to James Strong's, with a definite article affixed, the accuser, that is, the devil. So once again, in Hebrew or Greek, James Strong does not define, you know, Satanus or Satan as in adversary or, you know, just a adversary. Every single one of them, usually with the definite article affixed, means the devil. And so what I'm saying is that's what they usually do. Just as the devil came to Eve and said, yea, hath God said, so also do they come and say, oh, did, did Jesus Christ really tell the devil, get thee behind me? Yeah, he did. That's what it says. Well, you, you made a very interesting point when you said that the Antichrist means instead of, because that's what Satan does. You know, that's uh, you know, what he's all about. He's putting himself instead of God. 
And as God has his representatives on earth, earth, you know, Christians, Satan has his representatives on earth, that, you know, usually the Jews, well, always the Jews, but also, also it, it can be white people who, you know, act against God. You know, let's not pretend that um, our own people can't be um, servants of Satan because they can. But I mean, uh, the, Satan does have his, you know, Yahweh, Satan saw that uh, Yahweh gave, gave birth to, or in one sense, to Adam and, and the, the, the white Adamic race and Satan wanted his own seed on, on the earth to, to, you know, overcome Yahweh's seed. So he said about mating with, um, with Eve. And, and that's why we, you know, have the Jews, the Canaanites, the Canaanites, the Edomites, whatever you want to call them these days. But, um, yeah, Satan is always, you know, he's always offering a, a counterfeit alternative to whatever Yahweh is offering. Amen. And I think that's exactly why many of the single seed liners do it. Now, some of them may be studying it. You know, I know for a fact that even Pastor Peters, for a very brief amount of time, entertained the devil is your flesh theory. But what I think they do is they withhold certain truths because it's what's not said that actually they want to, to propagate. For example, I touched upon it briefly when I said that, well, if Jesus Christ is tempted of his flesh like they want to say, then Jesus Christ isn't perfect. The same analogy applies. Well, then if the devil didn't seduce Eve all the way back in the Garden of Eden, well, then God screwed up and created the first son to be a murderer. And that's the part that I think is more dangerous in a lot of ways. To me, it's more logical to believe that the devil's meddling caused something to happen and Cain became the world's first murderer then God just created Adam and Eve and their first child was born evil you know and so that's what I think it is why they leave that out they go oh well you, there's no devil it's just your flesh to get you thinking you are the devil and they love nothing more than that because then all of a sudden you're not looking at who the Jews father is you're looking at yourself saying well I, I should be in a way it's almost Catholic if you ask a Catholic who killed Christ they'll never tell you the Jew even though scripture says that, what they'll tell you is, I killed Christ, you killed Christ, our sins killed Christ. So in a lot of ways, it's like guilt, I think. They want to hold somebody in guilt and fear. Well, as I said earlier, Jeremy, um, you know, uh, if, you're not going to have, if you're not going to believe in the devil, if you're going to turn Satan out of the scripture, you have to replace him with something, be it, you know, evil thoughts or, as I mentioned in relation to the book of Job, prayer, which is just completely ridiculous, and, and, talk, and the guy meant pr the prayer of evil people, or just the works of flesh, it doesn't fit. I, I, I mean, you might be able to use that in some instances, but not every instance. And clearly there is a different, important differentiation in Scripture between the works of the flesh and the works of the devil. And, uh, I mean, the, the book of Job makes it very clear that there is a personal de devil, an actual devil. And, and that, that gets so much support throughout Scripture, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, that there is just simply no getting around that unless you add or take away from Scripture, and you're in serious trouble if you do so. Yeah, exactly. I've noticed that as well. As all of a sudden, you know, like I had stated this evening, if God's not the author of confusion, then the devil is. I've noticed how a lot of these people will start changing exactly what they preach or what they say, and they'll start saying that. They'll say, well, the Jews are the author of confusion. Well, that's partially true, but, you know, when we're talking about these terms, like we covered in uh, Isaiah tonight, Isaiah chapter 14, king of Babylon, if God's not the author of confusion, then the king of confusion 
can't be the proverbial Jews. It has to be one singular deity, once again, which is the devil. So what I'm saying, I think it's quite ironic how all of these instances of the devil are personified, they're deified in Revelation and Genesis throughout all the scripture. And again, in almost every translation, translation that has ever come, with the exception of maybe Young's literal transliteration, every single one of them personifies the devil. And in the last 2,000 years, I haven't really read too many books that aren't Jewish that are trying to attribute the devil to man's flesh. I haven't read that at all. In fact, it's never been considered at any point in history, or even for Martin Luther and the Protestant reformers, did they ever bring up this fact and say, hey, you know what, the Catholics are wrong by saying the devil's real. They never said that. They said they were wrong for selling indulgences, and they were right. But they never said they were wrong on certain aspects like that. If there are sons of God, and Jesus Christ taught that the tares are the children of the devil, then we better believe that the tares are children of the devil, because the word is sperm. Once again, that word seed. So if the devil literally has seed, then a thought can't have sperm. So again, it flies in the face of common sense, I think. And it's interesting how the word diaspora, which means a scattering of seed, um, is used in reference to the, the migrations of the Jews. So, you know, it talks about uh, in the parable how, you know, the, the evil seed was scattered amongst the good. So even the Jews, by, you know, um, sort of by, by implication, illusion, uh, refer, the, refer to themselves as the scattered evil seed. Yeah, exactly. And that's the beauty of Christian identity, I think, is so many times, you know, people want to label us a hate group or they want to come along and say what we're teaching is non-traditional or whatever, and then they get shocked because the majority of us, or, or most CI pastors, worth their salt, will turn around and do like I did this evening and quote the Jewish Almanac, or will quote their own words. And that's the one thing I've noticed that most of them can't come back against. When they know the Jews are God's chosen, they'll say, and you say, wait, but the Jews here in their encyclopedia say they're not, that they're the direct descendants of Esau, whom God hated. They can't come against that. And that's where I think the danger is, is because each and every one of us, Judeo-Christian or Christian identity alike, will read the scripture usually through, you know, rose-tinted bifocals, and will attempt to find what we want to see within there. And that goes exactly dovetails to what you're saying, because that's what happens when you get overtly racist men who aren't, you know, too honest, or you get the overtly anti-racist people like the Judeo-Christians who are trying really hard to read into the Bible the fact that the Jews are God's chosen, and they'll swear to you, you know, with conviction that, of course, the Bible says the Jews are God's chosen. Of course, the, the devil is just our flesh, but... You know, it doesn't say it, and that's where I think that's what I think the importance of shows like this are, or even polygamy and monogamy, is because, you know, a lot of men I think do that, and I'm you know I'm not going to say anything against Swift or Comparay or whatever, but all of us throughout time, even Butler, Goet, all of us have probably taught things that later on we said, maybe I was a little wrong there, you know, a little wrong there. And usually, I will say this on record, when it comes to myself, I have usually found that I have often been misled by other men, and that's the danger of it. When we start going into Strong's and we read that Satan means the devil, period, the archenemy of all good, you know, specifically the devil, 
then, you know, when someone comes along and says double just means flush, that can be really enticing. But I think it's up to each one of us to go back to the strongs. And, and everything I said, like, you know, you were saying to listen to it in archive, please do go back and check every single one of those instances because that's the whole duty of men. A lot of men will come along. A perfect example of that, you've heard me say it before, Second Peter chapter 2. Time and time again, I've heard Pete Peters, who I was close to, say, oh, these natural brute beasts are, are, are Negroes. They, they, they need to be taken out and killed. But in reality, if you read Second Peter chapter 2, the context of those verses are white Anglo-Saxon false prophets who were among the people and also shall be among you. So what I'm saying is a lot of times when we want to see, we see, oh, there's beast, it must mean Negro. Not necessarily in the instance of Second Peter, those false prophets were white people, but they were considered on the same level as natural brute beasts meant to be taken and destroyed. Big difference. Well, I think we've covered the, um, the no, oh, we could go into it a bit more, I suppose, but um, I think we've covered it pretty well, the no-devil doctrine. Um, clearly, it is a heresy. There is absolutely no other way of putting it. Um, you know, we, we can skirt around the issue and, you know, walk on eggshells, but let's call a spade a spade. It is her- an heresy. That's exactly what it is. There is a devil. To say that there isn't is Amen. to say that uh, <laughs> there is no Bible. Oh, hello, Eli. There is no yeah. Bible story. Uh, and, we... there... and, uh, and I just want to touch very quickly on another heresy that we were speaking about last week. And I'm glad that Eli's rung in because I can ask him about this. Um, we're talking about um, the, the no free will doctrine, you know, the Calvinist doctrine. And uh-huh. a, a scripture pop, popped into my head this week, and it said, it's from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 19. It said, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Clearly free will. And I think the no free will doctrine is, is a, a heresy as well, simply because it's an insult to Yahweh. Because what you're saying with the no free will doctrine is that um, Yahweh... The, the only people that Yahweh can get to, to, to love him and obey him are, are mindless automatons, are robots. But, you know, Yahweh's better than that. He can actually create beings with a free will who, of their own free will, will choose to worship and obey him. And I'm glad you're on now, um, Eli, because um, at the end of the, the Voice of Christian Israel podcast you did last um, Saturday, you spoke about how you said that Calvin, Calvin, John Calvin may have been a Jew. Do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, it's becoming pretty obvious that he was a Jew. He was a he was like one of the first televangelists, right? Uh preaching that the Jews are are the Israel of the Bible and uh he he was the one who talked uh, one of the people who talked Cromwell into uh preaching this doctrine and bringing it to England as a part of the Puritanism uh, which is based on Calvinism. Okay? Uh, until we did that show on on Sunday, I had no idea of the depths of the depravity of Calvin, right? And uh, one point I, I would like to make on free will is if we don't have free will to do good or evil, then Yahweh is doing the evil for us. Good exactly, point. Exactly, yeah. So are you going to say that Yahweh does evil? You know, uh, the Bible clearly says he does not. James, uh, James, one, I think it's one fifteen, says, that "Don't you dare say that Yahweh does evil." <laughs> okay. Yeah. Now, now he creates evil, which is he creates beings who are capable of doing evil as a result of their free will. Okay. So, but he does not do. He does not perform evil acts, and he does not disobey his own laws. 
Okay. Well, if we, yep. ha- if we have no free will, as I said last week, um, Eli, then, you know, what's the point of the day of judgment? Right, well, you know, yeah, exactly. No one can accuse me of race mixing if he made me race mix. Yeah, what's the point of rewards and punishments? There is no point, because if, if Yahweh is doing it all for us, then he's the one who should get rewarded, and he's the one who should get punished. Right? Good point. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it, that's a, it's an insane doctrine. It's an insane doctrine to suggest that we have no free will. And uh, it's, it's uh, not Cromwell. Um, who, who were we talking about? Who was, <laughs> who was the Calvin? Uh, Calvin. Calvin. Uh, Calvin just took that doctrine to extreme. My position on predestination is that we Israelites were predestinated to incarnate in order to choose between good and evil. Not that good and evil would be decided for us, okay? And, and where Paul talks about the doctrine of predestination, he uses words like may and might, and he's only talking about Israelites, okay? So that we might be the, the, uh, you know, the leaders of the kingdom, the government of the kingdom, so that we might achieve those things, okay? And then uh, at the end of Joshua, you know, he says, well, well, how are you going to choose? Are you going to choose Yahweh, <laughs> or are you going to choose against Yahweh? For me and my house, we choose Yahweh, okay? And then uh, the word free will is uh, clearly used uh, at least 20 times in the Old Testament. So it, it tells us that we do have free will. You know, uh, so uh, obviously... Calvin's doctrine is designed to create a sense of fatalism that we have we have no choice in our own salvation and that that's been predetermined for us and whatever you do is really I don't know what is it a waste of time <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, of a it's it's a kind of a do your own thing do- yeah. doctrine isn't it because it doesn't matter either way you know you're, you're going to go right. out and seen it Yahweh's will yeah, Obi, I hadn't thought of that because that is, uh, it, it is, gives you the excuse to disobey the law. And isn't that where modern Judeo-Christianity is at? There is no law. You know, yeah, we don't exactly. to, we're already saved, so what's the point? <laughs> right? But uh, the reason I called in is what I wanted to discuss Ezekiel chapter 28. And, um, and uh, Pastor Visser had mentioned the, uh, uh, what was it, the... Uh, uh, oh, I forget what the what the uh, verse was he quoted, but uh, let me just go into Ezekiel chapter 28. Uh, and it is true that the first ten verses of Ezekiel 28 are about the king of Tyre. Okay, let me just read the first two verses. The word of Yahweh came again unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyrus, Thus saith Yahweh Elohim, because thine heart is lifted up, and thou hast said, I am a god, I sit in the seat of God, and in the midst of the seas, yet thou art a man, and not God, though thou set thine heart as the heart of God. And of course, many human beings, many Israelites, have uh, considered themselves to be as smart or as great as God, right? And uh, many of people who deny that God exists are, in effect, making gods of themselves, right? So this applies not only to the king of Tyre, but to uh, many people who have really big egos, right, and have no sense of humility. But in, in verse 11, the context changes. Verse 11, Moreover, the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Son of man, 
take on the son of man being, being son of Adam. Okay, so he's talking to us. Came out, the, the, the word of Yahweh came unto me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus. Say unto him, Thus saith Yahweh Elohim, Thou scalest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Oh, that's interesting. Well, well, the king of Tyre was never in Eden. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I noticed. I noticed it's also a new manuscript beginning in verse eleven, right there, where, like you pointed out. Yeah, yes. Sure. Yes. Now, verse thirteen: Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering: the sardis, topaz, and the diamond, beryl, etc., etc., and the carbuncle and gold. The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. Okay, we're talking about the creation of what we, the angel we call Lucifer. Verse 14, thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. Amen. Well, what does, what does cover <laughs> mean? Yeah, well, cover is, you know, like the, um, the wings of the cherubim cover the mercy seat. Okay, but I, here, I think in this sense it means who disguises himself. Okay. Thou art the anointed cherub that dis and I have set thee so thou wast upon the holy mountain of God, thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire, going back to Job, he was going up and down, you know, back and yeah. forth through the earth, right? Verse fifteen Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day thou wast created. That can't be true of the king of Tyre. Yeah. Okay? Yeah, it's true. That can't be true of the king of Tyre. Until iniquity was found in thee, by the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled in the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore will I cast thee as a profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub from the midst of the stones of fire. And, of course, it uh, relates this destruction to the judgment day. So, clearly, yeah. there's, there's a couple of statements here that cannot be applied to the king of Tyre, the literal king of Tyre, as the no-Satan people suggest. Well, uh, the, this cherub that covereth is simply a metaphor for the king of Tyre. But, no, uh, there's two aspects of this cherub that simply do not apply to the king of Tyre. Okay. Yeah. Sure. So I just I just wanted to bring that up because uh, several of the no Satan people have argued that this Ezekiel twenty eight. Well, it's all about the king of Tyre. No, it's not. Because yeah, the unless king, the king of Tyre was in in the Garden of Eden. Right. <laughs> and yeah. unless he was perfect. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Those two points cannot be true of the king of Tyre because he at best he was an Adamite, and I actually believe he was an Adamite, the, at least the original king of Tyre. And it, so uh, clearly, Eli and Jeremy, what we have here, we have Ty, the king of Tyre, an adversary, and then later on we, um, the writer is discussing the adversary. So we have right. an adversary and the adversary. Right, right. And uh, it, it talks of this adversary as being in the guy. Obviously, it was Nahash, the one who seduced Eve. Oh, now I remember uh, you had mentioned what, what does the word beguile mean, Jerry, Jeremy? Uh-huh. Well, if you go into Strong's Concordance, the definition of beguile is to seduce wholly. 
W-H-O-L-L-Y, to seduce holy. Now, there's only one way that I can conceive of a complete and thorough seduction, right? <laughs> yeah, All sure. Right? It's not a partial seduction. It's not just a mental seduction. It's a total seduction. That's a great right? point. Yeah. Okay. And that's what the Strong's Concordance tells us is the definition of the word beguile. All right? I mean, that, it's right there. Okay? You can look it up in your Strong's Concordance. So Eve was seduced sexually. No doubt about it. Okay. Well, in the, the book of Maccabees, I think it was, um, we read out a, a verse last week talking about uh, how Satan literally seduced these. Mm-hmm. So it, that makes it very clear. Right. Maccabees and various other, yeah, I think uh, you and Jeremy talked about the uh, apocrypha, apocryphal sources which actually get into this more thoroughly, okay? But if you look at the language of what really happened, obviously Eve was seduced. And yes, two different seed lines, (laughs) Eve was in fact the mother of the Kenite seed line. Indeed, yes, Mm -hmm. indeed. Mother of all women. That's what I like pointing right. out is he has to be mother of both the tares and the wheat because when these guys say, oh, she's just a mother of whatever, they just discount Cain. But right. it doesn't really matter. We've pointed out before the Canaanites married yeah. through Esau. So That's right, right. Now, there's an interesting uh, thing here because the the no Satanists and the no seed liners or anti-seed liners say that we are accusing Eve and making making Eve a slut and a whore, right? Well, that's what happened. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Isn't it happening today? Yeah, exactly. You could see right? it. And in fact, I would probably even go on record to say that our women, our white women through the media, are more susceptible yeah. to race mixing than any other. Right. Yeah. And if it's not race mixing, how otherwise have we fallen? Yeah. Right? That is the nature of the fall, you know. And so uh, I, I'm sorry if it, it besmirches your concept of Eve. That's that's not our problem. You know, you have to go out and look at the world and see that our current present-day Eves are doing the same thing, and our society is being destroyed because they're doing the same thing that Eve did. Yeah, that's a great analogy. Yeah, there I really mean, is nothing new under the sun. No, no, there isn't. There isn't. But anyway, that's why I called in for to you know, suggest that Ezekiel 28, again, has been misrepresented by the No Satan crowd, and you cannot compare the cherub that covereth with the king of Tyre. The cherub that cover is a spiritual being, obviously. Uh, you know, cover means protect, okay? But... When when this protector found iniquity, iniquity was found in thee. Let me read verse seven, seventeen. Sorry, thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Okay, that's vanity. Okay, thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. This is intelligence, tremendous intelligence. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Okay, so he's cast out of heaven into the earth. And we know that some of these spirit beings, some of them are cast underground and are being kept there for judgment. Some of these beings are demons, as the demon that was confronted by Jesus, uh, Legion, right? He spoke to this whole group of demons that was possessing this one person. <laughs> 
or maybe it was two persons, right? And uh, cast them into a herd of swine, and then the swine committed suicide, right? Yeah, they did. But we should be so smart as to do that, right? <laughs> Rather than be possessed by demons. Because clearly, these non-physical entities exist in the spirit world, okay? So, uh, and uh, I'd say Christianity traditionally has always believed in these non-spiritual beings. It's just in the modern, modern era that uh, you know, people have started denying this and doubting it, okay? Yeah, in the so, modern era, um, Elijah, uh, Jeremy was talking about uh, how a, a rabbi many hundreds of years ago um, came, came up with the no-devil doctrine, but in the modern era, does the no-devil doctrine originate with um, Sheldon Emery, or does it go back a little farther than that? Oh, it certainly goes back further, but uh, Sheldon Emery picked up on it. And uh, I'm not exactly sure why. And I remember I talked with George, Pastor George Udvari about this because uh, he, he, he was a two-seed liner and uh, believed in the literal Satan. And he asked Sheldon Emery to read his book, which was, uh, you know, the, the reference, the Christian Israel reference book. And um, Sheldon Emery just uh, threw a fit <laughs> when <laughs> when George Udvari mentioned two seed line and when he mentioned Satan. I mean, Sheldon Emery just plain threw a fit. And I think what uh, was actually going on there is Sheldon Emery was a very successful radio broadcaster, and the 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 station that he was on was being threatened by the ADL. Okay. So they wanted Sheldon Emery to tone down his rhetoric, and I think that's what he did. He compromised his rhetoric by preaching the No Satan Doctrine and by oh, yeah. uh, preaching against the Two Seed Line Doctrine. Okay, yeah. And I think he did that as a means of uh, assuaging his Jewish critics and, keep, and stay, keeping his radio show on the air. Okay. But, you know, you can't please the devil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. He, he, his radio show was canceled anyway. Okay? I mean, you can't do anything right with these people. Okay? But once they have identified you as a problem, you know, t to their agenda, they will, never, they will never bring you back into their good graces. Not that we want to be, right? But I think uh, Pastor Emery made a mistake by even trying to get Did he ever recant the doctrine? I don't think so. I don't think so. But I know Pastor Udvari had, uh, like, he was in tears. He, he couldn't understand why Sheldon Emery, you know, had such a problem with these two doctrines. You know, it was unbelievable to him that, that he would, you know, because he's, uh, you know, he was trained by Swift and Compare. Okay? So, uh, you know, who both taught a literal Satan and, and obviously the two seed line doctrine. You know, so he couldn't understand why Sheldon Emery would be opposed to these two major, you know, points of theology, you know, the Christian identity. So, um, but I think it's because uh, Sheldon Emery was simply trying to keep his show going in the face of tremendous criticism by the ADL and other Jewish groups. Now, now Eli, you mentioned a book there, the Christian Israel Reference Book. Was that right? It? Yes, the um, Christian well, Israel. Tell us a bit about that, because I've never heard of it. Yeah, uh, well, it's on my website. Uh, it's one of the books for sale, and I just had to reorder a bunch. Uh, 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 Pastor Udvari did a great job. It's, uh, it's very similar to the AIT course. You know, uh, uh, I forget the title of what AIT stands for, but it's, uh, it's also a two-seed line 
training course, okay? So it's a uh, spiral-bound manual, uh, teaches two seed line, teaches Satan, you know, literal Satan doctrine and the migrations. You know, it's, it's very, uh, very kind of typical Christian identity, all right? So, uh, yeah, so uh, his book is available on my website, okay? Uh, just go to the store, and it's the first item listed on, in the store. So, so what's your, give out your website, give it a plug. Yeah, okay, it's www.anglo-saxonisrael.com, and there's a dash between uh, Anglo and Saxon, because that's the way it's written, okay? So www.anglo-saxonisrael.com. And we're almost back up on the air. We just have a couple of articles missing. It's taken like six months for us to get all the missing articles back up online after the ADL put pressure on PowWeb to take my website down, okay? I received an email from PowWeb giving me 48 hours to uh, 48 hours notice that my website was going to be taken down and there was nothing I could do about it. There was no appeal. They did give, not give me any idea, you know, opportunity to appeal. And uh, but the ADL uh, listed my website as one of the uh, you know major problems that the ADL has, right? <laughs> okay. And I didn't make the li- most, most recent list because my website was down for practically three months. Okay, so no hits for those three months. Uh, so, so, yeah. Does the ADL have a particular description of you? Uh, you know, uh, an encapsulated comment about about uh, you on its website. Well, um, yeah. no, no, actually they don't. Uh, it's uh, they do have one article uh, listing myself and Pastor Dan Johns and several other uh, you know people in the Christian identity movement and uh, several other pastors including James Wickstrom, because it, uh, they have an article about the day that uh, our Council of Elders held a, uh, held a meeting trying to decide whether Wickstrom had violated the law uh, when he allowed uh, uh, someone else's wife to live in his house, right? And uh, so we were, we were trying to decide, well, what, is, what does the law say? You know, obviously, Paul says you should not have even the appearance of doing yes, anything to abstain wrong. from even the appearance of evil. That's right. Not, yeah. Okay, and so we we found that Wickstrom was, was not in accord with that, but we didn't actually issue a ruling because his congregation defrocked him before, uh, so it made a, our ruling unnecessary. But we decided, you know, that yeah, he he was in violation of Yahweh's law. You know, now the the fact is that if the state uh, agrees to your marriage, and let's say the state agreed that you, you and your wife are divorced. Well, does Yahweh agree <laughs> with that? Right? Does Yahweh agree with that? Okay. The state has nothing to say about it. And uh, Wickstrom's position was, well, the state had agreed. You know, well, but the, the question is still, did Yahweh agree? All right. Uh, yeah. Okay. So anyway, uh, so that and that's the only time they actually mention me by name, as far as I'm aware. Okay. Oh, really? Although, yeah. Although they did mention me when when they took my website down, that uh, you know, 
they mentioned my name then. And, but but I think they try to avoid mentioning me by name because they don't want to give me any publicity. <laughs> exactly. I've, I've said that so many times. They hardly yeah. ever mention me. They keep me in their hate map. But right. the moment I go out and get arrested, right. they're going to have my name everywhere. But they'll mention David Duke. Now, by the way, David Duke, uh, when I first published my book in 2003, I sent him a copy of the book, The Great Impersonation. Okay? And he sent it back without reading it. His, uh, in fact, his secretary called me up and said, uh, David Duke is not interested in reading your book. He's going to send it back. Well, that means oh, David wow. Duke is not CI. Yes. No, he's anti-CI. He is very much anti-CI. Okay. Yes, well, Pastor Dan John says something similar. Okay. Yeah. So basically, he's a show. I think they have allowed him to continue his career as a Jew basher, right? And you can say anything you want about the Jews, except that they are not Israel, (laughs) and they are the descendants of Esau and the children of the devil. If you go down that road, then they'll cut you off. Yeah, I've actually heard David Duke on one of his broadcasts years ago say that the white Anglo-Saxons were the descendants of Esau. Oh, and I was you're like, That's kidding. a little backwards. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I could dig that up again. But yeah, David yeah. Duke definitely doesn't know CI doctrine. He knows it, no, no. you know, in passing. No, he opposes us. He definitely opposes us, okay? Yeah, he's just a more slick version of Alex Jones, right? So he gets into, you know, and... It's okay, you know, the Jews are fine with, with the uh, people who criticize the Holocaust and, you know, the people who criticize Zionism, etc., etc., but you do, do not question their descent from the Israel of the Bible, right? <laughs> you know, anybody who goes that far is no longer, you know, in their good graces, okay? Yeah, and, and he, Duke, Dr. Duke does look better with a beard, <laughs> <laughs> Celtic Cherokee. Okay, so I just wanted to bring up that uh, Ezekiel twenty-eight. You know that that uh, that covering cherub is not the king of Tyre. Yeah, well, thanks for that. That's really opened my eyes to that. That's um, great. A great uh, sort of differentiation there. Right, right. That, that it just shows you how carefully you have to read scripture. And, you know, to determine what's actually being talked about. So from verse 11 on, the context changes from the literal king of Tyre to the covering cherub. And they're not the same. I tell you what, Sheldon Emery must be rolling in his grave right yeah, now. Yeah, right. But I, I think uh, I think he's repented. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I certainly hope. Yeah, I've been praying for him. Okay, guys, great show. Great thank show. Thank you. All right. right, thank you. Take care. Yeah, God bless. Bye-bye. And yeah, and on that same token, it should be pointed out that I've actually heard David Barley one time, a couple years ago, on one of his CDs that he mails out to his people. He was talking about, if you believe in dual seed line theology, then you have a debased opinion on what really happened in the Garden of Eden. And I thought that's always stuck with me, that statement, because to me it's a little backwards. It's the other way around. If we're debased for stating the obvious that Peter and John confirmed later in the New Testament, then what does it say for a lot of people who want to say, well, God just messed up. He didn't really know what he was doing, which is essentially what they really allude to. Well, if that's the case, Dave Barley, I'm proud and pleased as punch to have a debased opinion. That's all I can say. 
That's what I'm saying. It seems like dual seed line theology is definitely more backed up by Scripture. And in fact, you know, we, we mentioned my book, Sataniel, in that in that book. It's huge. I should have used it for source notes tonight. But, and Jeremy, sorry to interrupt yeah. you, brother, but where can people get that book from? Plug your book. They can order that. The easiest way to order that would be swing by the website covenantpeoplesministry.org, and there's a section there at the top for books. It's accessible on Amazon.com, Lulu.com, and several other places, all five of my books, actually. But in that book, what I was saying was in Sataniel, Fallen Morning Star, and in fact, Eli wrote the introduction for that book. It's a really good book. I suggest it. You can download it for free. It's not necessary. It is copyrighted, but you have free use to quote it, to trade it, put it on your Kindle Fire and everything else. But what I was saying was in that, I, I had so many quotes. There's numerous quotes from the Apocrypha book, books, the uh, Gnostic text, and everything else, all pretty much coming back to the same exact thing that we have, which is that Eve was seduced expatio being the word, wholly sexually seduced, again, as Eli James pointed out. You know, to me, that makes more sense. Even in the, in the historical books, we have more proof of that. But, you know, we said it time and time again, you really don't need to have all these other second, third, fifth witnesses. The reality is, is if you really read the Genesis account in the original Hebrew, it says something entirely different when it comes to the seduction of Eve. Now, we had Lloyd on the line. Is Lloyd still with us, or is he? he I believe he's still on the line. You there, uh, Lloyd? Hello, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? Good night, Lloyd. Oh, I'm, just, I'm doing all right. I'm just listening. Y'all have a sermon tonight. It's been pretty good. I, I, I believe in the devil and the burning hell and all that stuff, so I'm in agreement with that with you on that. Excellent. So you're like us, Lloyd. You're going to give the devil hell, eh? Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to say from now on, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Oh, yes. Yeah. I hasten the day. Obama, Obama signed a bunch of stuff and had a bunch of kids around him and stuff, I heard. <laughs> I liked him up there when uh, when we had that shooting up in Connecticut. He was all forcing his crocodile tears, and he's acting like he cares. And I'm sitting here thinking, this guy's a Muslim. He's an antichrist by biblical definition. I don't think he really cares too much about people being killed when God only knows how many people he's murdered in the Gaza Strip. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Is, he a, is, is Obama a practicing Muslim? I mean, does he pray to Mecca? Or... I don't know. Obama's definitely a Muslim. Yeah. No, no, but I mean, is he a practicing Muslim? Does he actually, you know, face a, a, a Mecca, you know, however, however many times a day they, they face Mecca and pray? Is he, is he that much of a Muslim or just sort of a nominal Muslim? I'd say he's nominal. That's my humble opinion because, you know, anybody who's ever been in jail or had the misfortune of being in jail with your black militant Muslims, and almost all of them are, it should be pointed out that most blacks who say, hey, I'm not Christian, I'm Muslim, do so so they can call the white man the devil. But he doesn't, like, make an, a media spectacle of every day at 4 o'clock bowing to, to Mecca and doing his, his prayers and everything. So he's probably one of these non-practicing Muslims, like, you know, Adam Sandler's a non-practicing Jew. That's right. He's an atheist Jew. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Did you guys just last week, Logan Hunter, they had that Dewey Tucker on there. Logan just really ripped him up. That was terrible. 
You know, I heard about that show. I actually heard, I caught a glimpse at the very beginning of the first one, but yeah, I actually ended up having to turn it off because I got to be really, really choosy with a lot of the people I listen to. You know, in fact, uh, Obadiah is much more choosy than I am because I'll go and listen to pretty much everybody. But a lot of that stuff brings me down, to be honest with you. Five hours of people arguing. It's like, you know, I don't want to hear people argue. I'd like to hear people actually talk theology, you know. It's kind of like Logan was trying to give his theology and and Dewey Tucker, he must be an older man, like probably in his 70s or 80s. He's trying to give a different view. And Logan is just hollering at him and hollering at him. You're telling this calling Dewey Tucky a blasphemer and all that stuff. That's just, to me, that's just not no way to treat a guest to come on your show. Yeah, that, that's what I was going to point out as well. Is like If you've noticed, Obadiah and myself have even had people on our show that we may not 100% agree with, but we definitely like to hear their position and hear where a lot of that comes from. And in a lot of ways, that failed first show was part of the reason why we came and did our show on, on pre-existence as well, to try and show that people can get along, you know, in a, in a a theological sense and not beat each other up and call each other blasphemers over a difference of opinion. So it is interesting, but man, there are so many shows now on TalkShoe. In fact, I was telling Obadiah this before, I'm refreshed in it because in 2005, 2006, there were very few of us. It was like me, Eli, and Wickstrom. That was really about it. And we were the only people on TalkShoe at that time. And now there's, man, there's shows for everybody. I get hit up all the time in emails for people wanting me on the TI, the targeted individual shows. Chuck from Vancouver wants me on there. And I'm like, you know, that's not anything I know about being, I mean, I'm targeted, I'm sure, but I don't walk into Blockbuster and have people, you know, stop me from going out the door. Yeah. Yeah. Need something else. Anyway, uh, yeah, I just wanted to listen to your Bible study tonight and everything and enjoy what you're doing and everything. And uh, like I said, I just uh, I just wish Logan would treat everybody with a little more respect. I thought about calling this show. He's probably going to holler at me, so I ain't going to call in there. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing. If you're going to have a guest on the show, in fact, there's things we've toyed with having uh, even some Jews on this show. And me and Obadiah have kind of decided against it in the long run because, A, you're known by who your guests are, but, B, if you're going to have a guest on – at least let the person, you know, speak. To me, it's in poor taste to have someone come on and then self-aggrandize and, and kick them off. It seems to me like somebody really trying to make a name for themselves. And it should probably be pointed out that what I know of Dewey Tucker is he's a lot more legit when it comes to, you know, Aryan Nations than Logan is. Logan's not Aryan Nations in any way, shape, or form, but Dewey Tucker once upon a time was. But I don't agree with his stance on pre-existence, but I definitely agree with predestination, and that's something is, that is, even... Yeah. Oh, sorry, Jeremy. Is Dewey Tucker, is he two-seed line? I, I, I didn't get, get that out of um, Logan or anything. I'm not quite, quite sure. I, I heard he, he was apparently some form of Baptist minister or something, but is he actually dual-seed line? I believe once upon a time he was, but over the years, it seems like, and this is just my opinion, I'm not 100% familiar with his work, but one thing he says on his main webpage is that he's not really accepted in too many circles, that not too many people really, you know, agree with him. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that, you know, some of his theories are a little different. But again, that's something we can we, we should be able to listen to. In fact, I've said it time and time again, I would love to have Mark Downey or even Dave Barley, who would never come on the show, but I'd love to have these guys on the show so they would have their position to actually 
to, 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 to defend themselves. I honestly, in my heart of hearts, have tried for six years to a decade to understand the no-devil hypotheses. And every time I come back to it, I come back to the conclusion that there is a real devil. I really wish that one of them would come and, and you know, defend their belief. And Dewey you know, would be welcome for that as well. I'd like to hear how he justifies pre-existence, but I don't think he goes by the title of Christian identity now, but I believe once upon a time he was affiliated with Butler's Aryan Nations. All right. Well, Jeremy, I said I was going to institute a, uh, a new segment in the show tonight, a Bible contradiction solved. So should we, how about we get into, get, get into one of the arguably, probably the biggest contradiction of them all? Excellent. That sounds great. You know, a lot of these people, these atheists, time and time again, they love coming along saying the Bible's so chock full of contradictions. But you and I have said it time and time again, when it comes down to it, if you're well versed within Scripture, these seemingly, you know, these seemingly tra- contradictions aren't really contradictions at all. So I say great. I love the idea for the new segment because this, again, will give Christian Israelites the ability to arm themselves when their idiot like Alex Linder wants to come and say, here's a contradiction, when it really isn't. Oh, have you seen that thread on VNN that uh, traitor Glenn Miller, as uh, some people like to call him, you know, Rounder started up about, um, you know, funny Bible, difficult Bible verses, you know, like, you know how we wanted to do a show on um, the hard sayings of the Bible. Well, they've, they've, done, they've done our work for us as far yeah. as choosing the scriptures are concerned. Have you seen that? It was created a couple of weeks ago. It's running several pages now on VNN forums. Oh, indeed. I, I have seen that. And I should point out, you know, the hypocrisy behind all that, because like them, love them, or lump them, when it comes to, to uh, Glenn Miller, I have on DVD in my house, you know, video of Glenn Miller preaching dual seed line Christian identity doctrine. So once upon a time, Glenn Miller used to be, and I might add, a very good dual seed line preacher but apparently something's changed over the years and now all of a sudden he wants to attack you know christian identity and yeah so i saw that thread but i haven't seen it since so it's probably up to a lot of pages now yeah so we'll we'll have to take some of our verses from that uh that thread and uh, discuss them in some time in the future i'd love to have bill think on uh, maybe I'll give him a, I'll drop in a, a line next uh, next month and see if we can get Bill to come on the show. But anyway, tonight the contradiction we're going to look at is did Enoch die? Now in John chapter three verse thirteen we read, and no man has ascended up to heaven but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man who is in heaven. So what this verse is saying very simply and very clearly is that Christ is the only one who has ascended into heaven. However. In Hebrews chapter 11, that famous uh, chapter about the heroes of faith, in verse 5 we read, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. Now the first half of that uh, verse and the, the amplified rendering of it reads, Because of faith Enoch was caught up and transferred to heaven so that he did not have a glimpse of death. So what we have here is a seeming supposed contradiction where, where, where Christ is the only one who, who is ascended into heaven, yet Enoch apparently has ascended into heaven. So, so what, what's the deal here? Well, if we look at that word translated, as in by faith Enoch was translated, it comes from a Greek word, and I'm, I can guarantee you I'm going to mispronounce this, metatephene, and it means to carry over, 
to change, to remove, to translate or to turn. So it doesn't necessarily mean you know, to put on the Shekinah glory, to put on immortality. In, in fact, the same word is used in the following, follow, following verse. Or, uh, I'll read the first verse out it's from Acts chapter 7, verses 15 to 16. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died, and our fathers, and were carried over into Sychem and laid in the sepulchre that Abraham bought for a sum of money of the sons of Emor, the father of Sychem. So Jacob died and and his fathers, and they, their bodies, their corpses, were carried over into Sychem. Now the word here, and were carried, the word for carried here, is translated from that exact same Greek word, metatothemi, which means to carry over. So in one sense, Jacob and our fathers, as the Bible puts it here, by being carried over into Sychem, they were translated. So clearly what translated means in this instance, and certainly I believe with... um, with, with um, Enoch, and I'll prove this shortly, is that he, his body was removed and buried in a, in a particular place. And I believe that Enoch was buried by Yahweh himself. However, we'll, we'll continue on. In, in Genesis chapter 5, verses 23 to 24, we read in verse 23, and all the days of Enoch were 365 years. So Enoch lived for 365 years. And in verse uh, 24 we read, and Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Now if Enoch never knew death, Jeremy, then how come his days are numbered or his years, I beg your pardon, were numbered? He would have had no end to his years, would he? Yeah, it's much like uh, Moses when you think about Moses because it's kind of similar in the same thing where it talks about Moses didn't see the land of Canaan, he disappeared and Yahweh God pretty much took his body. You know, and later Michael and and Michael and Satan are arguing over the body of Moses. The body of Moses would be the body of his law, but be that as it may, it does say in a way, if you think about it, the body of Moses that Moses did give up the ghost as well, and in the same manner as well, how Enoch's days were numbered to what three sixty five. Now, in Colossians chapter one verse thirteen, it says it's referring to us Christians, Colossians, and us Christians who God has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Now, Jeremy, the last time I looked, I was in a flesh body. How about you? Yeah, definitely. definitely. So, so, so this word translated comes from a similar word to metatothemi. Uh, it's a Greek word, methistano, and that has a similar word, to, a similar definition to the other word. It means to carry away to de- or to depose, to depose. It doesn't mean to, you know, put on your Shekinah glory or put on immortality. It just means that, you know, in a spiritual sense, we've been translated into his kingdom. But we're still in flesh bodies and we're still going to die. Now, you, you mentioned about the um, uh, Moses uh, about him, him dying. In Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 5 to 6, starting from verse 5, we read, And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He, God, buried him in Moab in the valley opposite Beth Peor, but to this day no, no one knows where his grave is. So in one sense, God translated Moses. He was in charge. He buried him and put him in a secret spot because I'm sure, of course, there would have been the concern that people would have dug up Moses and worshipped him, his bones, his corpse as a god. Um, now, now the Bible says that Enoch died. Now, now people say, oh, where does it say that, Obi? Um, so, so we go back to the 
to Hebrews chapter 11, which is the, the famous chapter on the heroes of faith. And, uh, you know, Paul, who wrote the, wrote the, the book of Hebrews, he, he goes through all sorts of heroes of faith, Abel, Noah, Abraham, and, of, and Enoch, of course. And in verse 13 of Hebrews 11, he writes, These all died in faith. So who died? All of them. Every hero of faith, including Enoch. And it says, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So Enoch, even Enoch, faithful Enoch, did not receive the promise. What was the promise? Of course, eternal life. Now, in Acts, sorry, I beg your pardon, in Hebrews 11, uh, Paul goes on to confirm this in verses 39 to 40, and I'm reading from the Amplified Bible this time. And all of these, all of these heroes of faith, including Enoch, though they won divine approval by means of their faith, did not receive the fulfillment of what was promised. Verse 40, because God had us in mind and had something better and greater in view for us, so that they, these heroes and heroines of faith, including Enoch, should not come to perfection apart from us before we could join them. So if Enoch never died, then he has come to perfection before us, and that means that uh, the Apostle Paul is wrong. Now, I'm sure there are plenty of Paul bashers out there say, say, oh, well, this is the Apostle Paul, you know. We, we know that a lot of the stuff he wrote, you know, was completely, you know, erroneous and, you know, not biblical. But we have confirmation in uh, 2 Peter 3.5, I think it is, Jeremy. We've discussed, discussed this verse before, where Peter says that... Uh, Paul wrote according to the wisdom that Yahweh had given him. So when Paul says, when he writes twice, mind you, that all of these heroes of faith died, clearly all of them died. They all knew physical deaths. Now this raises the question then. So what did Paul mean when he wrote that Enoch should not see death? Well, well, clearly there are two deaths in the Bible. There's the first death, first death, and then there is a, a kind of spiritual death, the second death, as the Bible refers to it. In Revelation 20, verse 6, it reads, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, on such the second death hath no power. So Enoch did not suffer the second death, spiritual death. He is currently asleep in Yahweh, you know, in, in that uh, the, the Bible talks about how we're, we're asleep in Christ. It's kind of a, I suppose you would say, a dormant state, a hibernation, if you will, until, you know, beautiful, wonderful, restful sleep, until Yahweh, you know, resurrects us, you know, in, a, uh, in, in an immortal body. And, this, and in John chapter 8, verse 51, we have verification of this. It says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keeps my saying, he shall never see death. Now, clearly... Christ cannot be referring to physical death because all the people he was speaking to ended up dying. All of the disciples, you know, the apostles, later on, Apostle Paul, he died. Martin Luther died. Richard Butler died. Swift died. Comparay died. So he's not talking about physical death. He's talking about the second death, spiritual death. Enoch did not see death. He did not see spiritual death, but he did die. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that part up in John chapter 8, because that's exactly where I was going to go with it. Because Jesus Christ clearly says, you know, whosoever believeth in me shall never taste of death. And he even tells many of the people in the masses, verily, verily, I say unto you, there are people here in this crowd listening 
who will never taste of death. And I've always taken it to mean exactly what you're saying, which is the second death, because each and every one of us do die a physical death. So that promise is made good. People ask me, is it true that you never die? I say, yeah, absolutely. If you truly are one in Christ, you don't die, you know, that death, death. That's the whole point of it, the final death or the obliteration of death. Because you're talking about Enoch, you're talking about Moses. These are people who definitely did die, but they're not. They're saints. They're still alive. And so we see that this, this isn't a contradiction. Christ saying that thou shall never taste of death is true just as much as each and every one of us are appointed one time to die. Exactly. And the Bible uses such a wonderful poetic description of it. It says we fall asleep in Christ, and that's what we do. And when we die in Christ, it must be the most be- beautiful sleep, Jeremy. It must be the most restful and you know, just wonderful thing. And of course, when, you, when Yahweh wakens you, you'll put on immortality and you'll be having the time of your life. And you know, if we pass away before Yahweh returns, um, then you know, we too, if, we're, we're, you know, Yahweh, you know, if we put our trust in Yahweh, we'll fall asleep in Christ as well. But I mean, clearly... Enoch died. To say that he didn't die would, is to fly in the face of so many scripture, so much scripture. It's ridiculous. But uh, you know, there are some people in Christian identity who don't believe he died. That you know, he was so marvelous and wonderful that you know he didn't need to die. Physical death wasn't necessary. But no, it, it, it seems that Yahweh himself buried buried Enoch, buried his body somewhere. But Enoch is asleep in Yahweh right now. He's not lost to us. He's asleep. So. Even though he's died physically, he hasn't died spiritually, and the spiritual death is the one you really have to look out for, isn't it, Jeremy? Yeah, exactly. And that's that's what I was going to say as well. Is you know this does nothing when it comes to the whole theory of who the two witnesses are. If we believe they're Moses and, and Enoch, or you believe they're Moses and Elijah, be that as 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 it is. The Bible says they were transfigured, and that was the whole thing. And, of course, you know Lucas got this for Star Wars. But, you know, when they were transfigured, it fits perfectly into exactly what you're saying, which is the meaning of the definition of, you know, what happens, and confirms what Christ says. Touch of me, you know, believe in me, and you shall never taste of death. In essence, we will transfigure just as Jesus Christ did as well, and, we, and, and that's the difference between, you know, those who I believe are blotted out because they don't believe in anything, and those who truly are spiritual. If we're spiritual and, you know, we realize that when the mortal coil parts, we step out of mortality and put on immortality, then we're not tasting of death, at least the biblical definition of the word. But undoubtedly, every single one of us will die a physical death in the, in the flesh. That's just how it is. These, these canisters that hold our soul are just that. They're just canisters to get us from point A to point B in hopes that we make the right decisions along the way. Well, canisters is a great way of putting it. I like that. But uh, the Bible says how precious in Yahweh's sight is the death of his saints. And the reason it's so precious to Yahweh is because his saints are his children. And when, it's, when one of his children dies, a physical death, not a spiritual death, of course, he goes to be with Yahweh, you know, asleep in Christ until, you know, Yahweh's or Yahshua's return. And, uh, you know, that, it's precious to Yahweh because, you know, that... That, that child has made it into the kingdom, is going to be with Yahweh forever and, you know, be loved by Yahweh. And, of course, Yahweh loves to be loved and he wants his children to be safe and sound. And, of course, there's no, no safer and no sounder place to be um, than in, uh, asleep in Christ uh, uh, awaiting, you know, immortality. 
you know, the, the spirit putting on the our Shekinah glory. Hey, man. And when it comes to Enoch, you know, Enoch was a great prophet. He was a Latter-day prophet. And I'd probably say very few groups or sects of Christianity study Enoch as much as Christian identity do. But it's not a really, even though he was chosen, even though he walked with God and was not for God took him, these things are great things. But his life in the flesh wasn't that great because he lost everything for the most part. And he returns. He's so old, no one even really knew who he was. So what I'm saying is there's always a trade-off. To be chosen of God is a great thing, but it also cost him a lot in, on, you know, in flesh as well, on earth. And, and he wasn't a perfect man, even though he was, you know, Yahweh saw him as perfect through his faith. The Bible says all, all have fallen short of the glory of the Lord, everyone, all of us. There are no exceptions except Jesus Christ, of course. So even Enoch, that, that, that applies to Enoch. But because he walked in faith continually... You know, Yahweh appeared to that, that as righteousness to him and, you know, gave him a, a, a specific burial, you know, t- took him apart from everyone else as a kind of foreshadowing of what he's going to do f- to us. He's going to separate us, you know, from, you know, he's, he's going to remove the, you know, the, the tears and he's going to separate us, you know, by putting us into, you know, we're going to put on Shekinah glory and, you know, administer his kingdom on earth and, you know, be with him in the ages of the ages. So kind of Enoch's being buried by Yahweh is a kind of foreshadowing of what's going to happen to us. Yeah, exactly. Even Jesus Christ, when you think about it. A lot of people, even in CI, will come and say, well, Jesus Christ never died. But no, he did. He had to die. That was the whole point. He gave his life up will, you know, willfully for that very purpose. If Jesus Christ, who is God, who could have brought an a-, a legion of angels down to protect him from the Sanhedrin or pull him off the cross chose not to, but rather to die a physical death. Then later when he's transfigured with Moses and Elijah, you know, it's no big shock. I mean, in fact, if anything, that kind of proves they did die. That's not to say that the two witnesses can't come back, you know, in a certain form. But I know a lot of people in CI want to say that. They say, oh, well, Enoch Enoch never tasted of death, and Elijah never tasted of death to come back so they can be the final witnesses before the second advent. But my point is you don't have to be taken in the flesh and come back in the flesh to be a witness during the second advent when Christ returns with all his saints. You know, every knee bows, and we're all in our spiritual bodies anyway. So when it comes down to the two witnesses, you know, that's a whole thing, because nobody really knows. In fact, I've met people who say, I'm one of the witnesses of God, <laughs> you know? And be that as it may, we should all be witnesses, but we're not the sons of the fresh oil. You know, that's a, that's a title reserved for two people in the book of Revelation. Yes, well, the Bible talks about how, um, you know, the whole of creation groans for the, the revealing of the, the sons of Yahweh. You know, we, we haven't been revealed yet. We're still stuck in these flesh canisters, as you um, put it so aptly, Jeremy. And um, I'll, I'll have to get going shortly, Jeremy. Now, I must apologize. There was a couple of things I want to discuss tonight. One of them I've been promising to discuss for, for ages. It's the third time I'll have to... Uh, renege on what I was going to discuss a particular scripture that's uh, as far as I'm concerned it's the greatest untold story in the Bible but well, I'll, I'll have to try and do it next week you know fourth time lucky but uh, <laughs> gee Jeremy this, this would have to be our most uh, theologically intensive um, episode yet yeah and it's just a taste of things to come that's the beauty of it all as, as you know as well as I do in this open format 
we can go pretty much where we need to go. We can have just, you know, movement update. This is what's going on, which we didn't discuss, and I'm sure we'll discuss next week. But a lot of the, a lot of the things that are going on in the movement really don't matter. That's kind of what I tried to point out. Even when it comes to a lot of the single seed liners and a lot of the NIM busters, you know, what these guys do have no bearing at all on anything. If anything, they're a lot of distractions. And so I think that – you know, this one and our one on predestination and free will and the one coming next week on polygamy are exactly where it's at. Because the thing is, knowledge in the end times increases. We know that. And I think now in the year 2013, we're preaching to an entirely different flock of people. Knowledge has increased so far that we don't really, in fact, I myself, I haven't taught on the food laws in like eight to ten years. Why does it matter? I don't have to sit and tell people not to eat pork. They either will or won't. But a lot of these milk toast subjects is what I'm saying. I think of the audience has far surpassed that because most of the people I preach to, hey, most of them, some of them, in fact, I'm looking in the chat room, some of them were there back in the days of you, Coy, when I was on the show with Jonathan Williams and Brother Laszlo and Darren Howard, you know. So eight years they've been listening, you know. I think it's better just to kind of take them right to the meat so they're able to see who's true and who's Jew because – This no-double hypothesis is nothing in contrast to a lot of the uh, things I've seen interjected in Christian identity as of late. Reincarnation being one such thing. If anything flies in the face of of doctrine, reincarnation does. I mean, if that that doesn't take, take the prize for, you know, number one heresy, reincarnation. I mean, come on, people. The Bible says... It is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. I mean, how clear does the Bible have to be? I mean, people just must be, you know, I hate to use the word. It's kind of an unkind word, but I can't think of any other more suitable word word to use. These people must be retarded. (laughs) I mean, the Bible, it just drives me crazy, Jeremy, that we even have to discuss things like no devil doctrine and, you know, reincarnation and things like that. It's just... Just the idiocy. And what's that verse in, in the Bible? And I, I, it's in the New Testament. Gee, gee, that, that sort of, you know, limps it down, doesn't it, Avi? But uh, I, I, and I, I'm not even sure who, who wrote it, if it's uh, the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter. I'm, I'm sure you'll be able to tell me anyway where it talks about, I marvel at how quickly you are removed from the doctrine I taught you, something along those lines. What's that scripture again? I believe that was Paul when he was talking to the Galatians, but I'm not sure. I, I, I know the verse you're talking about. I marvel that you are so soon removed from the, even the simplicity that's in Christ. That's the one. Yes, well, I mean, it's a simple, it's a simple gospel, folks. It's a simple story. I mean, when the... Yeah, yeah Galatians, Galatians can... one six. Not to cut you off, but it is Galatians. Oh no, no, 1-6. that's all right. No, that's great. So Galatians one chapter, chapter one verse six. So yeah. So um, you, you know, how could you believe? How could anyone who calls himself Christian identity believe in reincarnation? I mean, it's just the, it's just beyond me. I mean, Yahweh must have made that person blind. That's all I can say. Or uh, I, I just don't get it, Jeremy. <laughs> I really don't. I mean, it's just so cut and dried. It's just crazy. Yeah, that's the thing. You know, a lot of people, in fact, I had someone come to my forum this week, and he said, oh, I'm Catholic. I'm not sure if I'll be accepted here. And I'm like, that's not shocking to me, because, you know, there's Catholics who know that the Jews aren't God's chosen, and there's 
Protestants and Baptists, and I've said it before. While the detractor comes against me a lot, saying, oh, Pastor Visser preaches in a Baptist church from time to time. You know, I've preached in churches. In fact, there's churches here in Brooks that are considered Judeo-Christian, but yet you go inside of them, and because of their 501c3 status, they just don't mention certain things. But they're not going to be so fooled as to come along and say the Jews are God's chosen people. So what I'm saying is, in a lot of ways, we can't narrow it down and just say, oh, you've got to be CI, because CI isn't really a faith system in as much as it is a theology. Many people from all sorts of different denominations accept Christian identity doctrine. Indeed. Now, now, Jeremy, next week we're going to be talking about a, a subject we've wanted to touch on for quite some time, or discuss for quite some time, polygamy. Um, and uh, the week after that, we're going to have a, an, a, our monthly edition of um, Desert Island Verses. Now, for the past several Desert Island Verses, I've chosen the subject. This time you have to do it, Jeremy, so it's up to you this time. Okay, okay. Pick a subject. So you, 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 you've you've got a week or two to think about it. Okay, yeah, it was on prayer last time, so it'll probably be something along those lines, but we've already covered prayer. Perhaps faithlessness or turning back. That's something I've always wanted to do, like dogs to vomit and sows to the mire. Oh, that'd be a good one. Yes, turning back, that'd be great. So scriptures to do with backsliding. Exactly, exactly, because I said it before, Christian identity is not one of those things you can really backslide from. Once the truth is made manifest to you and you accept it as truth, you really can't backslide from it. It's as much as I've gotten angry with God over the years and gotten frustrated with the ministry, I've never changed my religious beliefs. That's something you can't really change. It's funny, you said you, you get, got angry with God. We all get angry with Yahweh from time to time, even Jeremiah. He complained to Yahweh about his lot in life, about uh, living such a lonely life and, uh, you know, the, the most unpopular guy in Judah. But, um, you know, so Yahweh does know that, you know, we, we can get a bit frustrated with him at times, but he knows that the deep down we love him and we aim to serve him. So, uh, you know, praise Yahweh that he, that he overlooks these things. Amen. He is and merciful. He is merciful, and that's the beauty of it. His grace is sufficient, and we've covered it from this pulpit time and time again. If his grace was sufficient to cover up our sins, then we better be able to believe that his grace is enough to you know, forgive our uh, neighbors and our friends and our brothers' sins. But at the same time, you know, I like to be the optimist in a lot of things and, and say that a lot of these preachers are well-intended or they really mean what they mean. But to be honest with you, that's not really the logical stance to take in a lot of this. When it comes to, theolo when it comes to theology, you know, Scripture says if anyone comes and says something that isn't in this Word of God, we're really supposed to rebuke them, we're supposed to mark them, we're supposed to call them a false prophet, and we're supposed to have nothing to do with them. So while and a lot of times we strive for unity and to listen to other people's, you know, or other Christian identity adherents' belief systems, a lot of times some of these guys are intentional deceivers, <laughs> and that's what they, they're there for, I believe. Well, I find it amazing how some people are just accepted. Um, you know, heretics, Paul bashers, and you know, the Bible says after the, first, the second admonition, it says to reject them, you know, to have nothing to do with them anymore. But um, I see so many heretics moving about you know, in the various pod, Christian identity podcast chat rooms, and people just tolerate them. You know, we don't have anything to do with them. You, know, you, you, you admonish them, 
once, you admonish them twice, and if they still haven't, you know, pulled their heads in by then, you say, see you later, sucker, you know, don't want anything to do with you anymore. I mean, we're just too tolerant. We've got to become even more intolerant, I believe. Yeah, exactly, and I can say that from experience. You know, many of us, myself included, We'll pop on a Wesley Swiss sermon or an old Copper Ray broadcast or even, you know, old Richard Butler sermons, and we'll listen to it because it's easier, you know, especially over the years, it's easier to say, ah, he's well-versed, he's well-studied. I'm not going to go through my Strong's Concordance. I'm not going to go and read along with him. And I think sometimes that's where mistakes are made as well. You put it on for entertainment, you put it on for noise while you sleep, but your subconscious mind will pick up a lot of these lies that are unsubstantiated, and all of a sudden you're sitting there wondering, hey, you know, what's this? You, you, I can go into it. There's a lot of, lot of things that have been taught and propagated over the years that aren't necessarily true, and you wonder why do they do it. Nine times out of ten, it seems to me like men have their own little agenda, and so they'll mix something in there with it. Dave Barley, you know, I'm not going to attack him, but it seems like he kind of had to pick up on the no-devil doctrine from his father-in-law to marry his wife. And so now he continues to preach that. The reason I brought up Pete Peters in that was because, you know, Christ says, blessed are the meek, they inherit the earth. And to me, there's no greater sign of meekness than a preacher coming along saying, hey, you know what? I taught this once, and I was wrong. That is a big, huge sign of humility that many preachers don't. I think there's some out there, you know, Wyland included, who will never repent and will actually take their false doctrines to the grave because, well, it's better than saving face and admitting they're wrong. I'm wrong are the two hardest words for any Adamic man to say. Well, it all comes down to pride, doesn't it? They become so proud in their particular doctrine that they're going to defend it no matter what, even if they're even if it means imperiling their salvation, and imperil it, they do. But uh, Jeremy, I must go now. Um, it's been a great podcast tonight. Too. We've covered so many scriptures, and that sermon of yours on uh, the No Devil Doctrine was absolutely fabulous. But um, oh, there's a good title for a TV show. But <laughs> so, so I'll, I'll say say goodbye, brother. I'll see you again, or speak to you again next week, rather, and we'll talk about polygamy. But uh, Yahweh bless and uh, good evening, listeners. Goodbye. Excellent. Thank you, Brother Obadiah. I will see you next or hear you next Wednesday at 7. Okay. Bye. Excellent. So with that established, dear kinsfolk, once again, that was Obadiah 118 from the Christian Identity Forum. He is located down under, and there is a movement of Christian identity going on, actually, worldwide. We have adherents in South Africa. We have them in Australia. Many of the visitors to Covenant People's Ministry, especially our WordPress blogger, are located in Germany and other places such as, uh, as that. And ironically, there's a large population of visitors that come to the Covenant People's website from Japan. Why that is, I don't know. I've heard several theories on that, but many people have said to me that even the Japanese have issue with the Jews, so a lot of times they will quote us over here in America to... Uh, propagate what they believe over there. Uh, David Duke's latest book, a prime example of that, was actually translated into the Japanese language. Why? I don't know, but apparently Japanese have an issue with the Jew, and that confirms what Scripture says, which is that the Jew is contrary to all men. All men, meaning those who come along in a lot of ways, in a lot of regards, and say the Jews are God's chosen. Attributing godlike powers to the Christ killer aren't men at all. 
They're infeminized at a bare minimum, but most of them aren't men, because if the Jew is truly contrary to all men, then the Jew is only contrary to real men, meaning Adamite men, women, and children. But on the tail end of tonight's uh, study, I'd like to cover the second chapter of Second Thessalonians. Many people want to come along, and they want to even enter into Christian identity, and then they want to push their own dogmas. We see this time and time again, which is what I was discussing this evening. Oftentimes a Catholic will come and say, hey, I know the Jews aren't God's chosen, but we need to go ahead and bow to the Eucharist. Or they'll come and they'll say, hey, I used to be Baptist. I agree that the white Anglo-Saxon, Scandinavian, and Germanic kindred people are the Israel of the Bible, but I want to put more emphasis on baptism than brotherly love. One such doctrine that has crept into Christian identity is the doctrine of rapture. Time and time again, pastors like myself, Eli James, Greg Howard, and so forth, have brought forth the idea that there is no such thing as rapture scripturally. And Second Thessalonians confirms that. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, says this, Paul speaking. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. Now he's giving you the context coming out the gate. He's telling you, we beseech you, we're reaching out to you, brethren, even in this latter era, 2013, Paul is talking to you about what? The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto him. This term, gathering together, is where a majority of the rapture crowd get their belief. They say, well, we're going to be whisked away into the air, and we're going to meet Jesus Christ, and like a coward, he's going to take us off, he's going to take us out of here, and he's going to leave all the devil's seed down here on earth to wreak their general havoc. Doesn't sound like the God of the Bible to me, but continuing on, let's see what it says. Verse 2 in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. That ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, that the day of Christ is at hand. Nor by letter from us. The reason Paul says that in Second Thessalonians is he has to correct his letter, the first one that he sent to the Thessalonians, which is First Thessalonians. Today, in the year 2013, when you ask somebody to back up their belief into rapture, they will always quote 1 Thessalonians, where it talks about our gathering in the air with Jesus Christ. And they say, see, there it is, air. That means he's uh, coming to whisk us away, spitting in the eye of Jesus' own parable of the tares and the wheat, where he clearly says that the tares, or the wicked ones, the children of the devil, are taken first. That is the reason why he does it. But he also says, do not be soon shaken in mind or troubled by spirit or word. Meaning that many spirits, demonic spirits, or even evil spirits that are found within men, will come along and tell you, hey, the Bible isn't infallible. The Bible's full of contradictions. The Bible's this, the Bible's that. There is a devil, there is no devil. The reason they do that is not because they really are battling for your mind, not because they want you to send them tithes and offerings every month. It's because at its core root, what they hope is the average Joe Six-Pack soccer mom out there will throw up their hands in disgust and say, well, everyone's telling me the Bible is this, the Bible is that, the Bible must be a book of myths, and then walk away from it all. So, whether we hear from another spirit, or another word, a letter, an article, or even a letter from Paul himself, 
we should not be soon shaken in mind, meaning we should be fixed and steadfast, just as Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic are, unmovable upon the foundation that is Jesus Christ. Why? Verse 3, let no man deceive you by any means. Pay close attention, for that day shall not come. What day? The day of the Lord, the second advent, the great and terrible day of Yahweh, if you will. That day shall not come, except there be a falling away first. Stopping right there. A falling away is apostasy. And what Paul is saying is before, directly preceding the return of Jesus Christ to judge those goats on his left and the sheep on his right, there will be what's known in the land as an apostasy. A falling away from the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. And this is one prime example. Here, Paul, in our very own Bibles, is having to rewrite the Thessalonians because they mistook his first letter to mean something that it didn't. And even then, they were teaching that Yahweh God was a coward who will whisk his people away in the night, and that the devil shall inherit the earth and his children and so forth. But there will be a falling away first. Pay close attention. And that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. So tonight, dear kinsfolk, in my study where I pointed out that uh, Lucifer was sentenced to perish, that all who look upon him shall say, is this the man who deceived the nations? And that Yahweh's commandment and judgment upon him was that he shall be cast into the pits of hell? Once again, we see a second witness. There's only one person sentenced to perish in Scripture by name. That's not to say that many won't. But that is to say the son of perdition. That's what his name means. He is a son who will perish. That is why he was an, a dishonorable vessel from the get-go. Next verse, what does this son of perdition do? This other term, or this proverbial antichrist, what does he do? Just like we covered tonight, verse 4, 2 Thessalonians. Who opposes and exalted himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is a God. Here, God is personified. Here, God is capitalized. And what Paul is telling you is that in that great apostasy which we find ourselves in today, man will invent a new form of Jesus Christ. They'll bow to that image. They'll even pray to that image, and they'll say, this is what Jesus says. But it has no semblance to Jesus Christ of the Scripture. It has no semblance to any of the things that Jesus Christ taught, such as tolerance and yet red, yellow, black, and white, all are precious in his sight. Where are these terms in the Bible? They don't exist. But the devil will come along, and he will tell them what they want to hear, because he already owns the Judeo-Christian churches. And when mother and father deliver up son or daughter to Antichrist, this should shed light on why it is when we are delivered up. We should not premeditate what we should say when our mothers and our fathers and our sisters and brothers are saying, Oh, devil, Satan. Of course, they won't say that. They'll say, Oh, great Yahweh God. Oh, God of the Bible, have mercy on my son or daughter, because he's racist. He believes the covenant was made with Israel and Israel alone. The devil will come telling you what you want to hear like he always has done. And what the devil will tell the masses as Antichrist is God is love, just love, only love, not omnipotent like he truly is. He'll come and he'll say God is tolerant and loving of everybody but the racist, but the separatist, contrary to what the word of God says. So this son of perdition exposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, above the word, or that is worshipped, above Yahweh God himself de facto. Verse 5, remember ye not that when I was yet with you, Paul speaking, I told you these things, question, and now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed 
in his time. Pay close attention, verse 7. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. So as Paul wrote this, you know, around 30 A.D., he was pointing out many inconsistencies and saying that the mystery of iniquity is already working in the world then as it will be now. This correlates perfectly to what Peter says at the beginning of the second chapter of his second epistle when he says, But there were false prophets also among the people, just as there shall be false prophets among you. Shall, not might, not maybe, but will be. Unequivocally, undoubtedly, will there be false prophets. But yet it, the burden of proof is on your back, dear kinsfolk, to know who's true and who's Jew, who's taking you down a primrose path of rapture, or who's telling you what Paul himself says. Paul says this, Don't you remember that while I was with you in Thessalonia, I told you these things? And how soon are you removed? Just like the foolish Galatians, Paul set up how many churches for the Gentiles, and within a matter of a month or so, they would turn around and start worshiping Apollos. They would turn around and start worshiping gods and graven images who weren't gods at all. Or they would turn around and they would interject little things like polygamy, or they would interject all of these other dogmas. And this is why Paul would continually marvel. Why is it? Well... There truly is nothing new under the sun. And when we realize that the Jews have a 2,000-year head start on us when it comes to conspiracy and the conspiracy surrounding the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it should be no shock that we live in a latter era now where they call the Christ killer God's chosen people. But pay close attention. That mystery of iniquity does work. Verse 8. And then shall that wicked, personified, capitalized, meaning Satan, then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. The brightness of his coming is fire. And this correlates to Zephaniah, Zechariah, and especially Obadiah, chapter 1, verse 18, where it says that Esau and the house thereof shall be destroyed and shall be stubble and burnt up from within. Why? Because in that great and terrible day of the Lord, all the rudiments are burned up, and this was confirmed by Jesus' parable of the tares and the wheat. He says, don't gather up those tares, lest you destroy the wheat company in doing so. Rather, wait. And at the end of time, at the judgment time, God will send his angels, and they will gather all the tares, all those things that offend and cause iniquity within his kingdom. And they shall be destroyed. Here we see Paul confirming it. That all of these things, that wicked personified, the Antichrist, whom the Lord will consume, will be destroyed by the brightness of his coming. Meaning it is a rudiment, it was not in its initial state. When Yahweh God created in the very beginning, in that quote-unquote seven days of creation, he took a break on the seventh day and saw that all that he created was good, confirming in the minds of you and I that everything Yahweh God initially created was perfect. But through the devil's meddling, he will come, he will pervert, he will vomit it back out, he will cast it as his own and say, hey, look at what I've done. I turned Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians into a rapture doctrine, and a majority of people will follow that. Continuing on. That wicked shall be revealed, and it will be destroyed. Verse 9. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders. This is why the lake of fire is reserved for the devil and his false prophets. This is why Peter confirms in his second chapter, as well 
as other places, that the false prophet will be destroyed. Also, the reason why here it straightforwardly says that this false prophet, a.k.a. the son of perdition or the king antichrist, his coming is after the working of Satan. With all powers and signs and lying wonders, everything the devil does to steal, to kill, to destroy, well, guess what? This is exactly what this antichrist son of perdition will do and during that great apostasy, but he'll do it by calling it good. Just as scripture says, woe unto them who call evil good and good evil. We live in an era now where evil is considered good, where people turn on the television, they see adultery, they see miscegenation, they see killing, they see so much worse, and they praise it. They think it's great because the Jews are violating the Ten Commandments of Yahweh God for them in the privacy of their own home. And never once does it dawn on them that this might have an effect on their psyche, that it might dictate how they will think in the future. Verse 10 in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. What can you do to save yourself, your own house, and even your own community? What you can do is the same exact thing Abraham did when he delivered Lot from the plains of Mamre. And that is by inclining his heart to know truth, to receive the love of the truth that they may be saved. He who doesn't love the truth, John 17, 17, thy word is truth. He who doesn't love the word of God and accept it as truth, he is the same exact one who can be bought and sold hook, line, and sinker in this world. He has no moral compass. And while people like Alex Linder come along and say, I don't need the Bible to dictate morality, again, you've heard me say it. The Bible dictated morality long before there was an Alex Linder. The Bible doesn't need someone like Alex Linder, the atheist, to come along and say, I don't believe in it, as if that somehow makes him somehow safer in judgment. So, receive the love of the truth so you can be saved. That's the obvious thing that should be pointed out in verse 10 of Second Thessalonians. But verse 11 continues, And for this cause shall God send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie. What cause? The same exact cause that causes Yahweh God to give faggots a reprobate mind in the first chapter of Romans. Seeing as they do not like to retain God in their knowledge, God is truth. And here it's confirmed as well, verse 10, they receive not the love of the truth. And for that cause, God will send them strong delusion so that they will believe a lie. In essence, what Paul is saying is the same thing he said in Romans. And that is, if you prefer the lie over the truth, not only will you be outside the gate in the book of Revelation, because outside the gate is whosoever loveth and maketh a lie, but God will give you the desires of your depraved mind. If you want to come along and say that gelding and rape and all of these things are viable Christian practices, God's going to come along and push you that extra step as he did Pharaoh. Pharaoh only had power to harden his own heart about three times before God took over and started hardening his heart for him. Why? First and foremost, Pharaoh did not like to retain God in his knowledge. He didn't have a love for the truth, and because of that, God gave him what he wanted. Is that evil? Is that wrong, dear kinsfolk? No, indeed. And this is the reason why Jesus Christ would continually exhort and warn, Woe unto ye rich, for ye have received your reward. That may sound evil to the flesh, man, but the reality is, is it is a reward, and it's not much of a reward when you compare it to the, the paradise or eternity within kingdom. In, within Yahweh's kingdom. But the reality is, is temporal flesh, a little bit of money, and a few new cars and a nice job is all the reward Yahweh God will give them. 
and then they're blotted out. Then they're forgotten about. That's not any reward at all. So, receive the love of the truth. Again, the word is truth. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And Jesus Christ, in the book of Revelation, Yahshua Messiah is considered to be the word. When Jesus Christ returns, he returns with his saints. And his saints return, slain for the testimony of this word. Not coming along saying the law is done away with. Not coming along saying, I don't like Paul, I'm going to throw him out. But for dying for what is written. And why should we be surprised in that? Jesus Christ says, no man who doesn't pick up his cross and follow after me is worthy to be my disciple. Meaning, you must be willing to follow this book. These words, these commandments of Yahweh God to the death to be found workable, meekable enough to be used by Yahweh God. Why? Because they that because God will send strong delusion. Verse twelve. They that they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That's the point. That's why he does it. A way of being damned. Now we can go out and we can have pleasure in unrighteousness. But under the old covenant it was so simple just to come along and sacrifice a pigeon dove to sacrifice a lamb or a bullock and say, my sins are now forgiven me. But not so under the new covenant. Now you must be found worthy of the grace of Jesus Christ. Silence. Silence in my pulpit. And therefore, Jesus Christ made it much more stringent upon you and much more stringent upon those who want to come along and say, well, I'm forgiven of Yahweh God. Do you know? The only way you can know is to be accepted of Jesus Christ. But, Verse 13, this is what he says. In contrast to all of those who will be damned, might be damned, because they don't believe the truth, and they have pleasure in unrighteousness. What's unrighteousness? Slander, defamation, gossip, being a talebearer, murdering, variance, cursing mother and father, rape, and all of these things. Those are those who will be damned. And that's why they do it. That's for you to know. Hey, this person out here says he's Christian, but he's violating the law of God. Jesus Christ would point this out when he told the Pharisees, you sit in Moses' seat. You're preaching, thou shalt not kill, conspiring to kill me. To paraphrase. Why? Because that's what hypocrites do. He taught that so you would know. Here they are preaching a lie and living the most debaucherous life there is. Jesus Christ says, judge a tree according to their fruits, not what they say. Why? Because what man says is most oftentimes not who he truly is. Man wants people to think that he's pious and righteous all the time, even when he's in the thralls of sin. But verse 13 in Second Thessalonians, we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through the sanctification of the Spirit and the belief of the truth. So what Paul's saying here is that Yahweh God did choose in the very beginning. And this is not pre-existence, but rather predestination. When Jesus Christ, in the form of Yahweh, said, The older shall serve the younger to Jacob's mother, that was predestination. That was proving that Yahweh had a plan for Jacob, and that plan would come to pass. Therefore, there truly was no trickery on the part of Jacob. He was predestined to be and he overcame, proving Yahweh God right in his choice. Not only that, it should be pointed out that Jacob wrestled with an angel for the birthright. While Esau gave two flips and would trade it for a mess of pottage or some beans, Jacob was up early in the morning and arguing and fighting all night with a quote-unquote angel of the Lord for the birthright. Who would you, as a father, give the birthright to? But here Paul is straightforwardly saying, 
We're bound to give thanks always. Why? Because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation and through the belief of the truth. Whereunto you he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now each and every one of us is called by the gospel. We're called through Paul, Peter, and many other New Testament writers. So imagine the ludicrousness of those who come along and say, you know what? I believe in Jesus Christ, and all of my belief in Jesus Christ, and everything I know of Jesus Christ, Yeshua Messiah, comes from this King James Version of the Bible, but I want to throw Paul out, meaning they're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. They're essentially crucifying the messenger for the message by saying, hey, I know Jesus Christ better than Paul, who was taught at the very feet of Jesus Christ, who was struck down blind on the road to Damascus and chosen to be an acceptable vessel of Paul. If we throw Paul out of the New Testament, we're throwing 80% of it away. You might as well throw the whole Bible out and go and live like Alex Linder. The fool says in their heart there's no God. And if you don't believe God is powerful enough to preserve his word in the form of the 66 books that we have canonized today, then I truly pity you. But as I pointed out time and time again, what we preach, what all of these CI pastors are trying to you know, get into your mind time in and time out is the ability to think for yourself, not trust what we say, not take it and just run with it and start your own religion, but check us out. The difference between a cult leader and somebody who really cares is the one who really cares is going to tell you, look me up, search the Strong's, search the King James Version, search these Gnostic texts and see if what I'm telling you is true or not. But the cult leader wants to come along and tell you what to think. They want to come along and say, don't listen to so-and-so. Don't listen to this doctrine. Don't listen to that. Why? Because they're afraid. The devil knows his time is short. The devils believe and tremble. Why should we be shocked when they're afraid of CI and they consider themselves CI? Jesus Christ said tares look like wheat. Jesus Christ straightforwardly said that those tares are sown in amongst the wheat as part of the divine plan. So as that weak company, just like here in verse uh, 13 of Second Thessalonians, were chosen and sanctified by the Spirit of Yahweh God to go to the belief of the truth, which is the Word of God, so also were the tares and the children of the wicked one part of God's divine plan of the ages from the very beginning. Meaning that Eve truly is the mother of, of all living. Meaning that the Canaanite Jew truly does exist, confirming what Jesus Christ said. That the enemy who planted those tares in the field, which is the world, was the devil. And that he has literal children here. This is also confirmed in John eight forty four, but we'll not digress into that. I want to finish this chapter. Verse 14, Where unto you he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ? Called by the gospel, and we're all called according to the gospel. While Jesus Christ and Yahshua Messiah, or Yahweh, for lack of a better term, can talk to us in any form that they wish, just as the devil can appear in pretty much any form he desires to, to seduce or to uh, usurp authority over Yahweh God, so also can Jesus Christ. But what we know of God, and the most easiest, surefire way of knowing that God can speak to us is through his word, and this is what Paul's saying in verse 14. We're called by his gospel into obtaining the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold to the traditions which ye've been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now, Jesus Christ straightforwardly said that the traditions of men make null the word of God. But those are the traditions of men 
not the traditions of God. And there are traditions that accompany the law. And why many people want to come along and say, well, traditions make no the word of God. No, man's traditions do. Because man's traditions is usually to come along and say, well, God didn't really mean what he meant, and that the law really isn't in effect. And Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19, really didn't mean that until heaven and earth pass, you know, not one jot nor one tittle shall pass from the law. It meant something entirely else. Now, when you go to these types of churches, you'll hear this type of rhetoric. You'll hear them turn around and say, Jacob is a trickster, and all the while they're saying the Jews are God's chosen. Ask them, why is it? Why is it then that Jesus Christ would change his plan? Why is it that Jesus Christ would bring a new way when it straightforwardly says that Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us, that he is God manifest in the flesh according to John chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through 14? They can't answer that. What they want to do is attribute Jesus Christ to just being a son of God. Not the only begotten son of God, but a literal, simple son of God like Adam was, like the devil was, and like you and I are. And the reason they do that is because it is Judaism. Judaism doesn't necessarily come along and say Jesus Christ never came. The Jews don't necessarily come along and say Jesus Christ uh, is a fiction and a figment of man's imagination. But what they will do is they'll come along and say Jesus Christ existed, truth, and then throw in the lie and say, but he wasn't the Messiah, lie. He was a good man, true. And that's the way of the devil. The devil will tell you 98% truth and mix in 2% lies, and it's those 2% lies that will kill you. But nonetheless, we are called by the gospel, and we are called to stand fast and hold to the traditions that we've been taught, whether by word or epistle, Old Testament or new, we're to stand on what is already written, even on a superficial level. If the word of God says a bastard shall not enter the congregation of the Lord, we know that means mamzer, but guess what? To the superficial layman out there, it also means bastard, and there's truth within that as well, because Yahweh God does not approve of children born out of wedlock. That should be common sense. So if you can't accept the word of God on a superficial level, like a bastard shall not enter the congregation of the Lord, then you surely will never understand the deeper meanings of the term bastard, meaning mamzer, to give just one such example. So stand fast and stand on the traditions which we've been taught through the disciples, by the disciples, not by the Pharisees, not by Joel Osteen or Billy Graham. Verse 15, Therefore, brethren, stand fast, hold the traditions which ye've been taught. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and a good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. So we are to have good words and we are to have works to our uh, benefit. In judgment, it is our works that cover up our naked form, if you will, that make our garments, if you will. You will not want to be standing there stark naked in front of Yahweh God in judgment, because that, again, would mean that you have no works attributed to you. Jesus Christ said, judge a tree according to their works, their fruits, what they bring forth, not what they say. We can go to, to uh, John Hagee or Joel Olstein, any of these guys' churches, and they'll tell you they're doing great, marvelous things, taking food out of their neighbor's mouth to give it to the heathen overseas, and they may believe in their heart of hearts that they're truly doing what they're called to do. But if it's not truly transcribed, what good does it do? So stand, fa stand fast in the faith and let Yahweh God establish every single thought that we have. This is the reason why Obadiah and myself 
have been adamant about bringing certain studies to the children of Israel because there are many dogmas that we should be able to reason together within, whether it be the no-devil, pro-devil belief, whether it be pro-polygamy or pro-monogamy. This is something that we should be able to reason together. But seeing as it is, most of the people who propagate a lot of these doctrines are little coward punks who would rather hide in the dark and push their filth. Obadiah and myself are going to go ahead continuing exposing many of these doctrines like the no-devil and the pro-devil belief, because there is validity within that. If we're not able to see that the Jew has a literal father on earth, and that they will do the lusts of their father. What are the lusts of the father? Well, Jesus Christ said the devil comes only to kill, to steal, and destroy. You can turn on a movie, you can turn on the television, or even the newscast, and you will see the works of the devil throughout the land, being caused by, yes, men, but whose spirit is exactly influencing them? Is it the Jewish spirit through the media that glorifies race-mixing, miscegenation, and murder? Or is it the devil behind the scenes saying, hey, it's okay through gradualism, suddenly dropping down man's... uh, defenses, and and making them susceptible to whatever his prodding is. I believe it's the latter, dear kinsfolk, and the reason I can say that is because time and time again throughout uh, history, especially in the public schools, they'll come along the liberal and they will teach your children, hey, you know what, you owe it to yourself to find out if you're bisexual. You owe it to yourself to find out if you love black men or not. You owe it to yourself. All of these things empowering you when you're bought with a price, meaning you don't owe anything to yourself. You owe all things to Jesus Christ who bought you and purchased you with his blood slain on Calvary. But the way of the devil is to come along to your children, to your wife, to Eve, even in the very beginning, and empower her or them over you. That is red communism in a nutshell. That is what the devil seeks to do. So I'm going to go for about five to ten more minutes. If you have any questions, please go ahead and call in at this time. Uh, Any pertinent questions that are actually quite logical, you can go ahead for this time only and type them in the chat room, and I'll go ahead and address them. I usually hate doing that because it always sounds so completely unprofessional when people spend more time talking to their chat protocol than they do actually preaching the Word of God. But I noticed a few of you had questions, so go ahead in the next five minutes and post them in there if you have anything to say, and I'll be able to... Uh, answer them. What is the origin of the term God? Ironically, the origin of the term God comes from Gad, who is also another Old Testament God mentioned by Scripture in name. Uh, Astaroth happens to be one such uh, deity. Baal is another. Baal Peor is another. Baal Zebub is another. Dagon is another. And so God, ironically, according to what I've read, just the term, which is a title and not a name, stem from the lowercase Babylonian god Gad. And many of them in this day and age, when you hear them say that, when you go into the Judeo-Christian pulpits, you'll hear them even reference God in that term. They'll say, well, God told me this, and God told me that. In a lot of ways, it's not Yahweh of the Old Testament, but God, some other God. What about, uh, okay, when it comes to cremation, that is a can full of worms, dear kinsfolk. Cremation is one of those things that is actually not condoned or, or uh, promoted within Scripture. 
And the reason it isn't is because many of the Judeo-Christians want to come along and they say, well, at the second resurrection, the uh, second resurrection, when all the dead in Christ rise, they have this belief in their mind that zombies will be crawling out of their grave, and it will be just like the walking dead here in Sonoya, Georgia, throughout the entire world. The reality is, the scripture says this, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Whether we were formed of the dust as our original great uh, forefather Adam was, and it's confirmed, to ashes we shall return. That was the commandment given to Adam. That was the curse placed upon him for disobedience. And what that means is whether we turn to ashes by decomposing in a little hole or we burn up in a fire, we return to ashes. Either way you look at it, Yahweh God can use you. So many will come along and say cremation is 100% bad, and in a lot of ways I agree with that, because I don't believe we should try to be cremated if we can help it. But many of us who die in fiery you know, crashes or our house burns down around our ears while we sleep are not going to be forsaken and thrown out of Yahweh God simply because our flesh bodies um, are no longer in existence. That's the difference, and that's what usually happens, is the natural man takes everything to a flesh level. Therefore, if his flesh is fed, well, he feels pretty blessed. And that's also the reason why, when his flesh is fed, he has lots of food and plenty of hops and barley growing in his yard. They usually will turn from Yahweh God. But in times of war and in times of incarceration, we will find most men who once claimed to be atheists, all of a sudden, they'll be praying to Jesus Christ. So that's quite interesting as well. Yeah, cremation does in four hours what it takes 30 years in the ground to accomplish. And that's exactly what I'm saying about that. Yahweh God isn't going to sit there and say, well, you lived a life that was righteous and good, but you got burned to death, therefore you're not going to be able to enter into the kingdom. It simply doesn't work that way. But cremation as a practice was considered to not necessarily be what the children of Israel did. In addition to preservation of our dead so while the children of israel would carry their dead into the land of canaan for example to bury them or would buy a widow's field to be able to bury you know some of the patriarchs there yahweh god continually told us do not go after the way of the egyptian don't go after the manner of egypt why because they're making mummies over there and that's not what we should be doing that's what they do over in Asia today. And it's quite a sad state of affairs when Asian men and women live their whole life saving 10 to 20% of their income so they can have a really nice burial. But that's the way of it. Many of the people over in Asia, Japan, and China have a better home or an apartment when they die than they ever did when they lived. But that's an entirely different uh, study. Yeah, and Schwartz, if you have a problem with dual seed line, go ahead and hop on and call in and voice those complaints. But a lot of guys like you, you just love coming along and saying, well, dual seed line uh, focuses on mistransliterations of the Scripture. No, Judeo-Christianity focuses on the mistransliterations of the Scripture. Christian identity takes it back to the original Hebrew, the Greek, and the Aramaic, all three languages of which are fixed and unchangeable and haven't changed in upwards of 5,000 years. The reason they haven't changed is so people can't come along and say, you know what, Bastard means something than it really does, when it really means that a mamzer shall not enter into the congregation, that we can't miss, uh, race mix and so forth. So we are commanded to not do it as the heathens, because that's exactly what the heathens do. They do whatever feels good to the flesh. And that is why Obadiah and myself pointed out this evening that the devil is a tempter, and he will tempt 
through the flesh. While Jesus Christ could rebuke Peter for denying him or rebuke even Judas and call them Satan, it should be pointed out that once again the devil appealed through their flesh and was in their, if you will, flesh canister, able to work against what Jesus Christ um, was setting out to do. So, as it is, and no, indeed, Schwartz, we don't have to speak Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic, because the reality is, is there's enough concordances and there's enough scholars within CI who do. And we don't have to know every single work of Paleo-Greek or every single word to be able to know that Eve didn't eat an apple when apple doesn't appear in the text. That's the entire point. And we don't need to know Hebrew-Greek or Paleo-Greek or any of these Aramaic even, to be able to read the Talmud and know that the Talmud teaches that pediatry with a child below five years old is okay, and it's okay to sit there and Jesus Christ is a bastard born, in, born of adultery who's boiling in hot semen. That's, that's American English. We don't have to know that, and that's the whole point. I can read the King James Version. Guess what? 600 years this Bible's been in English. So we're not even talking about what the Strong's Concordance numbers made. We're talking about what does the text say. As we covered tonight, where's rapture in that? Where's the word rapture anywhere in the Bible? Oh, guess what? It doesn't appear. But that doesn't mean there's not 101 people out there who believe in the rapture doctrine and teach others to do so. And all the while, Scripture always says that the saints are taken last, that the rudiments are destroyed first. And Obadiah confirms that. But that's beautiful, as it should be. So remember all of these great things that Paul is teaching you, and remember that Paul taught what he taught out of love. Paul had humility, and throughout his walk, he wondered if he would be saved. Paul, above everyone else, in the form of Saul, being a Pharisee and consenting unto the death of Stephen, most likely had reason to worry about his salvation but if even Paul was worried that he wouldn't make it into the kingdom, that he wouldn't be found fit by Yahweh God, then what does that say for all of these people out here nowadays who even on a superficial level come along and say, you know what, Grandma Jones is in heaven. You don't know that. I don't know that. The only one who knows that is God. But it's quite presumptuous to come along and state it as if it's fact and believe it as if it's fact. Judgment is Yahweh God's. Who are we to judge Grandma Jones to heaven? Or to hell. Why? Well, second epiphany, the, the second letter to Timothy, beginning in chapter 1, verse 7. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. A sound mind. The only way you can truly know sanity or to be normal, being natural in the regard that we follow a supernatural deity, is through the word of God. This is why the atheist is considered a fool by David. Why the fool has said in his heart there is no God? Because only a fool could say that. But God doesn't give us the spirit of fear. Oh, my God, you better not listen to pastor so-and-so. What do you have to fear? The only person to fear is Yahweh God. In fact, that's the entire duty of man, according to Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. He continues on, verse 8. But not thou, therefore, be not ashamed of the testimony of our Lord nor of me his prisoner. But be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, not the bed of roses. And that's the way of the Judeo-Christian. They come along and say, if you take this altar call, if you rub this magical little rabbit's foot, if you open your heart to Jesus Christ and you give your 
your life to him and, and you make a pact to Jesus Christ and suddenly you're going to have no more problems. The life is going to be a bed of roses, but the reality is the exact opposite is true. Nowhere in scripture does it say your life's going to be a bed of roses. In fact, it says it's going to be the exact opposite, that you'll be hated and despised of all men for my name's sake. And that is even more so a realism when it comes to sola scripture or Christian identity. What we preach today directly from the word of God. That will get you persecuted. And so while the false prophet comes along and says, everybody wants to be a Christian identity pastor, I say, where? When? I've never seen this. Well, they're able to turn around and lie and say that there's a dirge barrage of young men and women kicking down the door to be Christian identity pastors. I'm still preaching with the same people I was a decade ago. And I don't see anybody new coming in. But they do it, they say it, and they walk away as if they have no accountability. Just as James says, as the natural man looks in the mirror and walks away and forgets what manner of man they were, so also does the false prophet come lie, forget what manner of lie he said, and also forget that he will be accountable for each and every person that he misleads in life. Judgment truly does begin at the house of, of Yahweh God, and why is that? Because Pastors and preachers are more accountable for each and every person we mislead. So while you stand in judgment, dear kinsfolk, you can sit there and not be able to blame Billy Graham. You're not able to blame Pastor Visser or Obadiah 118 or even Eli James. You can only blame yourself. On the same token, we can't turn around and be blamed for someone else's sins and someone else's lies. Because that's exactly what they do. Jesus Christ said in John 8, 44, year of your father, the devil, and he is the king of liars. Not only that, that the devil is the king of all liars, but when he speaks a lie, he speaks to his own because he's a liar and the father of it. Meaning that when the devil lies, his children see it as truth. Just like when our God tells the truth, we accept it as truth and attribute it to our life. So God didn't give us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. What's this saying? This is saying the fool who comes along and says there's no God is not in his right mind. And little surprise there, because you have to be a total ignoramus to look at the world today, to look at the beauty of a tree or the miracle of birth and attribute this to circumstance or chance. Can you not see the fingerprint of God behind these things? If you can't, you're a fool. And Paul makes no differentiation between that. He says the same. Those things that are created of God are clearly seen by those things of his creation. Meaning, a man, woman, or child of God can go out and see a beautiful sunset and a beautiful painted uh, landscape, if you will, in nature and be able to see the artist behind it. But the fool doesn't. The fool says, well, it's just circumstance. I descended from the same pond scum as the Negro. Therefore, he's my brother. We weren't created separate. We weren't created holy and put aside from Yahweh God. Of course they say that because they're fools. But verse 8, but... Do not be ashamed of the testimony of his Lord according to the power of God. Why? Verse 9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given in Christ Jesus before the world began. Stopping right there. The world began. 
Jesus Christ is considered the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. If we're really to talk about pre-existence, even though there is no listing for that in Nave's topical, even though there's very few verses that back up this belief, we could say that there is one who did pre-exist. And that would be Jesus Christ, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. What does this say? Predestination, not pre-existence, at least for us. Because if our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life or not, we do have the ability to have them blotted out. A perfect example of that would be adding to or taking away from the Word of God. If we add to the Word of God, according to Revelation chapter 22, then we'll be taken out from the Lamb's Book of Life. Again, that is free will. But His purpose and His grace is far above our works or our race. And that is where Christian identity fails Oftentimes, many people, because they put more emphasis in race above grace. They say, well, I was born an Israelite, therefore the grace of Jesus Christ has nothing on me. Once saved, always saved. All Israel is saved, therefore I can do whatever I want. The same theory applies to the no-devil belief, because they want to come along and say, well, if there's no devil, then there's simply no accountability. I can live how I want. And you know what? If I kill my neighbor, if I steal a car, if I rob petty cash at work, well, God made me do it. It's the exact opposite of the Judeo-Christians. Devil made me do it. Hypotheses. And they know it. That's why they do it. Verse 10, but it's now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, personified, capitalized, Jesus Christ, or Yahshua Messiah, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Not through his own words, not through his own desires, but through the gospel. And within the gospel, we are able to find eternal life. So while the Judeo-Christians love quoting John 3.16, which says, In the beginning God so loved the world that he created... You know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whomsoever should believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. They always drop that part, should. They always turn around and say, well, look, all you've got to do is believe and you're saved. But that's not what the verse says, even if you want to take it as being canonized in a real verse, which many people believe it isn't. What it's saying is God so loved the world that he gave his only, only begotten, Begotten, born of him, directly from him, not just a mere son of God like Adam who had the breath of life, but the actual sperm of God. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Should not doesn't mean would not, and should not means many will. Many who come along and say, you know what, I believed. Well, the devils believed and tremble. What good does belief do you? Faith without works is dead. And James straightforwardly taught it, and he was the brother of Jesus Christ. It does you no good to say, I believe in Jesus Christ, if your lifestyle will not accompany that belief. So what good does it do you to sit and watch uh, Survivor every Wednesday night, as opposed to listen to Pastor Visser and say, I be Christian? Well, you could be Christian and not listen to Pastor Visser, but my point is, if you're sitting there giving more of your time to an idol, more of your time to the Jew in Hollywood than you are studying the Word of God, then don't be surprised in judgment that your priorities were wrong. Your priorities were a little off. So it was Jesus Christ who gave us his grace before the world began. And why is that shocking? I have no idea. Because grace was imparted in the very beginning. There were two trees given. One was the tree of life. And everyone forgets that part because mankind prefers darkness. 
Adam and Eve, yeah, they went after the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because that's what's hardwired within man to do. But they could have just as easily went after the tree to no offense because they were told of all the trees you can partake, save this one. But that is the way of man, is it not? Man can be given the entire world like celebrities in Hollywood are. And then what do they spend their time doing but desiring after the one thing they could not have? Man can get a beautiful wife and then spend all his time worrying about all these other models that he may never get to know in his life. But that's the way of man, but not the way of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ abolished death. He brought life and immortality through the gospel. So, it is made manifest, and that's confirmed in verse 10. Manifest by the appearing who abolished death. This is why in the book of Revelation, the last enemy to be overcome is death. In that term, in the book of Revelation, death is personified, capitalized, because death is another name for Satan. No surprise there, because by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and by sin, what? Death. That is the whole point. What Adam and Eve did in the original beginning was give power to the devil. And in giving power to the devil, the devil was able to take root. And the devil was able to let his plan be manifest here on earth, if you will. His plan, even though as superficial as it is, and even in his mind, him thinking, hey, I'm going to overcome God. I'm going to pull a trick on Jesus Christ. And that may be what he literally thinks. It is truly all to the glory of Yahweh God. So, is there predestination? Yes. According to Paul, Yahweh God creates some vessels of honor and some vessels of dishonor. And those vessels of dishonor are not able to turn to Yahweh God and say, Why hast thou created me as such? Because they were created to be vessels of dishonor. But again, it was Jesus Christ who told Judas a vessel of dishonor would have been better that he would have never been born than to be the one to betray the Son of Man. What's that saying? That's saying that only through striving to know Jesus' face, praying through supplication and humility, down on our knees with our nose and face in the dust of the earth that Yahweh God created us from, can we truly work out our own salvation with fear and trembling and not be quite so damn worried about what our neighbor down the street is doing or what Joe Schmo up the road is doing. He will overcome death. But many people will follow death into that lake of fire in the book of Revelation, and they will be obliterated. And they will be obliterated because of their own choice, as is confirmed as well. As they do not like the testimony of God, well, God gives them what they want to hear. So it was, Jesus, it was Paul who was appointed a preacher to the Gentiles, and that's confirmed in the next verse of Second Timothy. Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Do you believe that, dear kinsfolk? Paul did, and even though Paul was worried about his own salvation, he had enough sense to know that anything done for Yahweh God is profitable and will be profitable in return, bringing about great increase. And that's the whole theory of tithing. Why the Jew comes along and the Judeo-Christian and says, hey, I want you to send 20 to 10% of your income every week to me because God needs your money somehow or another. The reality is, is the whole symbology behind giving your first fruits like Abel did was knowing that God should have the best. Knowing that whatever you do, you're thanking him for whatever increase you got. 
so uh, Cain was able to pick up some rotten fruit off the ground and say, here you go, God, and wonder why God was pissed off at his uh, sacrifice and his offering. No one was really shocked or, or surprised that Abel's offering was acceptable when it was the fatlings of his flock, and that sacrifice truly required blood like a real sacrifice would are you really sacrificing anything if you if it's not your own blood sweat and tears that are causing or going into that that are causing you to do it you're not really sacrificing anything but a little bit of time so paul would suffer all of these persecutions paul would suffer people who came along and said you know what we're going to be raptured out of here or like the galatians who would come along and say we worship the greek gods why? Because he believed. He believed, and that was the whole point. His belief was sufficient for him. Not enough for God, but his belief definitely led him to action, and that was good enough for God. So while these false prophets within Christian identity want to come along and say, I don't like Paul, and throw Paul out of the Bible, I can assure you that Paul is much more accepted with Yahweh God than these false prophets who are saying Paul was a liar or a trickster is, that should be common sense. Same as it is with these Gnostic texts. A lot of people come along and say, you know, Pastor Visser, he's preaching from the uh, Gospel of Thomas' infancy. He's uh, preaching from the Protevangelion, from the Gospel of Mary. That's non-canonized, so... That's what I say, and the reason I say that is because even if you don't believe these books are canon, quote-unquote, you should at least be able to put more stock in them in a historical value that they have and know that this book that's a thousand years old definitely is more to be trusted than what you hear on Fox Jewscasts every night. But that's what they do. He's not ashamed. Why? Verse 13 Hold fast the form of sound words, which thou hast heard of me in faith and in love, which is in Jesus Christ. Not the white man's hate religion, but the white man's love religion. Everything that Jesus Christ did was done out of love. Jesus didn't heal the blind Israelite and give him the ability to see because he despised them and hated them. If that were the case, he would have left them to the wolves. Jesus Christ didn't come along and rail against the, the uh, money changers in the temple of Jerusalem and whip them with a cat of nine's tails and say, you're making my father's house a den of thieves because he hated them more than he loved his Israelite people who were being deceived. And so that's the beauty of all of this. While many of the detractors want to come along and say, CI pastors think they're rock stars. They think they're great and, and, and in high regard and, and all of these things. The reality is, is no, we don't. Most of the people I work with are doing what they're required to do. The same thing you're required to do. Each and every one of my listeners in the chat room, you are called as well to give a testimony of yourself, to explain in life or wherever you go, why you have the light of Jesus Christ within you. That, dear friends, will turn people to desire what you have more so than anything you can say with your mouth. Children know it growing up. If they grow up in a house, if their father's sitting on his ass doing nothing but smoking cigars and cheating on their mother and saying, God this, God that, they know he's a hypocrite and they will not be fooled. So also are the children of God. This is why Yahweh God cannot be a liar, cannot change according to the book of Malachi, unless the children of Jacob would be consumed. If he could change, 
That's what scripture says would happen. Each and every one of us would be consumed within the lies and the inconsistencies that do exist because God is changing. But God never does change. Yesterday, the same today, yesterday, and forever. Meaning that here today in the year 2013, when you're reading in Leviticus 11 or in Deuteronomy 14 that you shouldn't eat pork, that verse is still going to be there in the year 2053, should the Lord tarry. And it will be there until the great white throne judgment when every knee bows and each and every one of us will be judged according to our works, not our belief. Nowhere are we judged according to our beliefs, although our thoughts do come into play in judgment, because what we think usually oftentimes leads to action, and we can't walk around thinking that we want to murder and just not murder and think that there's some great difference between them. But our works is what we're judged according to, and that was just confirmed. Paul had many works, and that was why. He's persuaded, persuaded he was able to keep them against that day. Why? Hold fast the form of sound words, which you've heard. That good thing, that which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost, which dwells in us. The Holy Ghost dwells within us. That's what separates us from all these other ethnos that were created on the sixth day. That the Ahadam man, the Adam, the plural Adam, if you will, was he who received the Uruk, or the breath of life. It was Yahweh God himself who physically breathed within the nostrils of Adam, and Adam became a living soul, quite unlike those Adamites that were created in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, quite unlike those others. But Adam was created in the image of God, not the likeness of God. And there's a big difference. If one is created in an image of God, it means he's a direct duplicate of it. An image, if you will, like looking at God himself, whereas those who were created in the likeness, well, in a lot of ways, that's a pale comparison. Many people look like human beings out there within the world. That doesn't mean they are. They may have the likeness of a man, but in reality, they're more characteristic of an ape than they are a human man. That doesn't mean that they're God's chosen people. In fact, Jesus Christ said God's chosen people are those who hear his voice and they do what he says to do. So, we mustn't forget this very important aspect. Paul taught what Peter and Jesus Christ all taught, which is contend. Contend means war. That means don't sit there and be spoon-fed lies by people like Joel Osteen or whoever the latest, greatest false prophet is. Don't sit there. Why? Because whether you think you can judge Joel Osteen in judgment or not, it's not going to work. You're not going to be able to stand there and say, well, God, you know, Billy Graham told me that racism was a sin when God commands you to be racist. And God's going to say, okay, well, we'll just go ahead and put it all on Billy Graham. That's not to say that it won't be put on the head of Billy Graham, but that is to say that you're not a scapegoat in judgment. You have no scapegoat. The children of Israel under the old covenant did. They were able to lay hands on a goat and cast it out into the wilderness and kill it, and that was their sin offering but not so in judgment. In judgment, each and every man faces death and judgment alone, and that is something that we must do in truth. So, coming up to the top of the third hour, as it is, there seemingly is no callers, so I will wind it down. But I do want to thank Pastor Eli James for calling in and giving his testimony as well and adding his emphasis on the anointed cherub that covereth. And that was what I was trying to point out as well. The anointed cherub that covereth covers the mercy seat. Cherub, 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 
Cherub also is one of those words that the no devil cannot come along and say doesn't mean what it means. Because cherub and cherubims and seraphims and all of these other terms, even principalities, all have spiritual connotations and all come back to the heavenly hierarchy of angelic or the angelic order. This was touched upon by Enoch. This was also touched upon in the latter New Testament apostles' uh, epistles. But that most likely will be a study for another day. So, each and every one of you, thank you for tuning in. It looks like we had a full house today for the most part, and that's great. I hope you guys did appreciate the Marty Free Zone. We are going to continue on with that as we've promised, because Amy Rose has a tendency to destroy wherever she goes. If you don't know who I'm talking about, good. That's the way we want it. But as it stands, we're not going to allow a Jew to come in, where, you know, wherever they may be found, and just denigrate and draw people aside on meaningless debates about genealogies and about, the, about you know, what they think the Word of God says. Word of God is profitable for reproof, for, direction, uh, for correction, and all of these things. Therefore, we must take everything back to the Word of God. If I'm telling you something that's wrong, please, dear kinsfolk, call in next Wednesday. Meet me halfway. I wish a lot of you guys would. You know, I've got some detractors out there, and I've got a few people even from my own family who say, oh, well, Pastor Visser, I don't agree with what he says. Now, ironically, a majority of them have never picked up a Bible, and they just know I'm wrong by default. But I'd love some of you guys to go ahead and call in and attempt to thwart me. And, by the way, I will say this. The reason we're holding off on our polygamy and monogamy broadcast, that is at least for three weeks now, it will be next Wednesday, is because I was truly hoping that hopefully we can get some female callers. I know for a fact that I've got at least 20 on my forum, women who listen. The reason I want to do that is because, quite ironic how a lot of these men who want to push polygamy and push you know, the taking on of more than one wife on the children of Israel would never once consider the equality aspect and allow their wives to have numerous husbands. But I would like to have some women call in next week on our polygamy and, and pro-monogamy debate and share their opinions on what they think about the practice of the early uh, patriarchs taking more than one wife is. Of course, Obadiah and myself believe that we are to have one wife, a bishop must be blameless, husband of one wife, and so forth, and Jesus Christ taught no different, and we're hoping to actually concrete that in the minds of the Christian Israelite people this Wednesday. So at three hours, dear kinsfolk, this is Pastor Visser once again. Four hours, excuse me, you're right, thank you, Dave. At four hours, I will now sign off, but I will invite you to swing by either thechristianidentityforum.net, which is accessible on the World Wide Web, or the Christian or uh, covenantpeoplesministry.org. Again, you heard Eli James give his URL. Once again, that is anglo-saxonisrael.org, I believe, or .com. Either way, it's accessible and easily findable through a Google or Yahoo search on Pastor Eli James. Thank you again, Eli James, for joining us. Hope to have you on very soon because I would like to have a brief side segment dedicated wholly to your tour in Vietnam. And the reason I want to do that is because many of our men and women find Yahweh God in the most illogical of places, and many of them have found them in the battlefield. Uh, Sonny Hodge, God rest his soul, was one of my closest friends here in Brooks. 
Sonny Hodge was under Butler's Aryan Nations, and he died about a year ago in December of 2011. But he also came to the realization of Yahweh's truth during his tour in Nam. And to me, it was quite eye-opening how we sent our boys over there to fight a war that didn't really break the back of communism, to have many of our soldiers come back to be spit upon by hippies and called baby killers when they're over there doing our country a great service. So, Eli, I look forward to having you on about that. I will email you shortly. Thank you, each and every single one of you, for calling in and for being a part of this four-hour telethon centering around who or what is Satan. It is safe to say Satan is real. It is safe to say that throughout all of history, Satan has always been considered real by every sect of Christendom, including Islam, the other Abrahamic religion, quote-unquote, but Judaism. So it is established once more. <laughs> That Judaism it is that has no devil, but Christianity most certainly does. So until next time, this is Pastor Visser from the heart of the Dirty South, and I mean this is a swamp. Brooks, Georgia, once again wishing you and yours great studies. War for Christ. Amen.